0: and welcome to the first ever inaugural episode of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. I'm your host, Ray Russell, and joining me is Steve Ekstak to talk all about the Monday Night War, the WWF, Monday Night Raw, and WCW Monday Nitro. Steve, are you ready to get into the 90s?
1: I am. Uh, this This is my bread and butter. This is when I grew up, so I'm pretty excited to get this going.
0: I remember it like, well, I can't say like it was yesterday, but I remember it like it was a, a, a couple years ago. I can kind of channel what I was feeling at certain points and, and when certain big things happen. So I can't wait to relive that, especially some of the things that happened on WCW Nitro. Yeah, man, it's uh, it's going to be a fun ride. We're going to start from, from the beginning, the September 4th Nitro, and just kind of work our way forward. We're going to discuss both shows each week, uh, We're and we're going to do a few extra segments where I'm going to at the end of every week I'm going to announce the ratings for the week we're going to figure out who won we're going to keep track of that over time we're going to pick our favorite segment from each show hold them up against each other and we're going to both make a decision who what we like better maybe one week you like Nitro I like Raw maybe the next week vice versa it could be it could be a lot of fun here as we you know discuss each show and analyze each show but first we got to explain how we got here and and that is Once upon a time, and I know you took some notes here from the Observer, so I'd like for you to chime in with any notes you have. But I guess once upon a time, uh, Ted Turner, uh, you know, they had their issue. He had his issues with Vince going all the way back to when the WWF was on TBS. Of course, Vince finally sold out to Crockett and left TBS. And Turner was not a fan of Vince. Vince was not a fan of Turner ever since. And that led to, you know, some shenanigans throughout 87, 88, 89 with uh, with Vince screwing with the NWA and later Turner's WCW. Fast forward to 1994, uh, WCW acquires Hulk Hogan. That had to be a, a shot in the face. And then, and then uh, Randy Savage followed soon thereafter. And now we're in 1995. And so, so so the story goes, according to Bischoff. I'll let you do yours according to Meltzer. Um, so the story goes, according to Bischoff, was he was in a meeting with Ted Turner. Ted Turner asked Eric, how do we compete with Vince McMahon? And Eric said, uh, thinking that it wasn't going to happen, um, so he wouldn't have to deal with it any further. That he needed prime time, and Turner said, "You got it. You got uh, prime time on TNT on Monday nights, going up against Raw." Uh, is that how? Is that how Meltzer tells the story, or is there a different narrative?
1: It's pretty similar. Um, they had a meeting on June fifth, I guess, early on in '95. Ted Vince sent out some letters talking shit, <laughs> shit to the, uh, Ted Turner, saying you need to close your wrestling company because of an embarrassment to his name. And this really irritated Turner. So they had a meeting, and Bischoff always claimed that the ratings on Raw were higher than Saturday nights because of the time slot and being on primetime. They kind of just went with that. Turner agreed. And I guess Harvey Schiller he made a comment, uh, if you're too focused on the competition, then you don't have enough time for your own uh, your own company. But even he kind of bought into it, and he said the number one goal would be to put the WWF down and out. People around Eric Bischoff say he was absolutely obsessed with running Vince McMahon out of business. And that's pretty much it. That's the notes that I gathered from the meeting that they had back in June of 95. So
0: so I I wound up pulling up an interview Ted Turner did, like a press conference-type interview or something along those lines, where he had mentioned that this was going to be taking place and how he was excited for it. And he he didn't call the show head-to-head, but he made sure to point out that this was huge, that they were going head to head. And I remember you you had read in one of the observers that uh, Meltzer claimed that uh, the the working title of the show might be head to head. And you thought that was ludicrous because you're basically acknowledging your opponent mm-hmm. in the name of your show. And so it does sound silly, but maybe that's where Dave got his new uh, information from was. Turner throwing that name around it. I, I want to mention there that at no point did Ted Turner say that's what the show would be called, but he he was using that word, those words a lot. So maybe that's where yeah. Dave got the idea from. I'm not sure about that. But I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on how this got created, how this started, because there's plenty of that on the WWE Network and in documentaries and things. So let's just get right into the fun stuff, if that's cool with you.
1: Sounds good to me. I'm excited.
0: So WCW debuts their Monday Nitro program on TNT, which everything's a lot different now here in 2020, but in 1995, TBS was the fun channel. You had your sitcoms and syndication, you had your cartoons, you you had movies and things, but it was more of the family-esque type channel. TNT was more the adult channel. And I don't mean adult like cursing and, and violence. I just mean like adult oriented movies, things that kids wouldn't even be interested in. So it was more, it looked yeah, like almost- the, gr- it, it was more, yes, it was more of the up channel of the turner brand and so it was odd to see wrestling which most of the turner execs weren't you know pleased with didn't look highly upon uh debut on tnt so that was a big deal initially they get their one hour slot starting at 9 p.m i'm not sure when they go to 857 if that's immediate or not i don't think it is but
1: i don't think so either okay i don't have it in any of my notes that i've read so far
0: so we'll get to that when i when i Find out when that happens. I haven't I haven't read too far ahead into this story here. Nitro winds up debuting, and this is by no mistake, debuting on September 4th. And the reason they did that was because the WWF Raw program was preempted that week for the U.S. Open. And so that gave the WCW a full wrestling audience. There was nothing else to watch. There was no competition. Genius by Eric Bischoff. Just absolutely a genius first shot here. And yeah, absolutely they come to us live and i love the intro the from the beginning when the intro started the uh, the explosions the fire the the grittiness the the wrestlers on the on the building when i saw that it was like nothing else you'd ever seen from wcw it was very adult like it wasn't so backwards in time type of intro you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah absolutely like i still have no idea what this saturday night intro video is supposed to do from this time frame what it means or, or something i have no idea what that is But when you saw this, that explosion at the beginning where the sewer cap just goes flying off and uh, just the buildings and the the athletes on there, it's just so far ahead of its time. Just really good stuff. And it it got your attention and made you want to tune in.
0: And so here we are, September 4th, 1995. It's the premiere of WCW Monday Nitro. It's running up against no competition whatsoever, unless you count the tennis open. Opening video, like I said, it was great. Uh, you'll notice if you watch the debut episode, there's Vader in the video on the walls of the buildings, and of course, that would get removed pretty quickly because Vader's pretty much gone from the company within this week. So yeah, he's not, he's not here very long. He, he actually never appears on Nitro, but we debut live from the Mall of America in, I think, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, Land of a mm-hmm. Thousand Lakes. I thought it was weird then. It's still, looking back on it now, it's it's still an odd choice. I don't really know the idea behind it. It is unique, though. If they were going for a unique, then they, you know, they hit the ball out of the park. I'm glad this was a, a one-time thing, though, and they, they end up going to arenas after that, because that was my concern when I first saw this was, is this where they're going to be shooting from? Random places, not necessarily malls, but just random places that weren't, you know, arenas. And, and so, l- luckily, the answer is no. But that was my first thought when I remember when I first watched it. A little weird, uh, weird seeing, you know, fans going up escalators and things like that in the background. It's hard to determine how many people are actually there for wrestling, how many people are there for shopping, how many people are there just because it's free so they can, you know, stop and watch. So, it's hard to determine how much of this is actually a wrestling crowd, but there's clearly enough wrestling fans there though because they make some decent noises. There's some chance that you wouldn't have heard if there weren't wrestling fans there that knew what was going on. So, that was the opening of the show. What was your first take on the Mall of America the or the opening overall production of how Nitro looked?
1: I thought it looked great. I Actually, I'm one of those people, and I don't know if there's more of them out there. I'm sure there are. But uh, I enjoy weird, random places for wrestling shows. I, I enjoy outdoor shows. I enjoy this show. Uh, to me, uh, it's like Pass like to the Beach 95, when they're on the beach, I, I enjoy that it just looks different and it puts wrestling in a different environment that you're not accustomed to. So it sticks out and it's, it's memorable. And I, I think that's kind of what Bischoff was going for here. Uh, you can ask anybody who watched Nitro where the first show was, and most of them will say them all. It, it just, it's just memorable. Is it the best? Absolutely not. Is it distracting sometimes? Yeah. Like you said, seeing people going up and down escalators and you really have no clue who's there for wrestling and who's just there to be there. But when you first turn it on, you're like, holy cow, they're in the middle of a mall. That's pretty awesome. Um, that's different. That's something you've never seen before. So I was hooked immediately. I remember rushing home to get in front of my TV for Nitro, and I never watched WCW before this religiously. My friend always talked about it, but I never watched it consistently until this. So I was hooked from day one, like that opening video, and then seeing the mall, I was like, oh, yeah, this is cool.
0: So we kick things off with Eric Bischoff and Steve McMichael, the former Bears player at ringside. Uh, Mongo and Bischoff are quickly joined by Bobby Heenan as he steps in. So we have a three-man team. My initial thoughts here when I was watching it, this is my 1995 thoughts, were why is the guy, when I, and, I knew, and I follow football, so I, I knew Steve McMichael's name, but why is the guy from WrestleMania 11 here, which M- McMichael had been in LT's corner at WrestleMania 11, why is Eric Bischoff? Hosting this, like I had never been taught that Eric Bischoff was the lead announcer. Little did I know that he booked himself into this spot on purpose. I was just wondering where the hell, you know, Tony Schiavone was. I I was that irritated me, and it took me probably a month or two to get over before I just got acclimated with Bischoff leading like the big show and just dealt with it. I was happy though that Bobby Heenan was there. You need that heel announcer. It felt like the three original three man group from Raw, like they needed, they wanted that again. With that outsider and then your your straight guy and your your heel. Yeah, okay. Of course Raw didn't have a heel at that time, but Hina would soon replace Bartlett in that later on. But that's a different year and a different show.
1: Yeah. I, I'm wondering I'm assuming Bishop just booked this book is so we can get over what he wants over. He has and that makes sense. He has an idea of what he wants this show to be in his head and there's no better person to call it than himself. Because it's more authentic that way for him, and at least in his mind. So I, I get it. I'd rather I'd much rather hear Tony Schiavone all day. But I understand why Bischoff did that. I can't remember right. that, that.
0: So we kick off the show, and on paper, man, you couldn't have asked for a better match to kick off your first nitro. Randomly out of nowhere, Jushin Liger returns to the States to take on flying Brian Pillman. And I can go back. I can go back twenty five years and tell you when Liger was coming out to that ring and he was getting ready to take on Pillman, I was absolutely through the roof excited. I remembered their match from Super Brawl 92. I had lived and died by that match. It was one of my most favorite matches in WCW history. I was amped. And, and you didn't get to see Liger very often. In fact, I don't think Liger had been there since 92. So I, I don't know. I don't remember him appearing in between those times. So it just for him to pop up like this, it was really a special moment. But unfortunately for me, they they didn't really live up to the expectations or the memory of that 1992 match. Yeah, several blown spots and sloppy spots uh, in this match. Uh, I th- and I think a lot of it had to do with Brian Pillman, not because he could he can't work. Obviously he can. I think it was because Pillman had put on so much body mass that he wasn't the cruiserweight that he necessarily was when he worked Liger last time. So things he were trying he was trying to do. Maybe didn't match up to his new body size, or certainly didn't match up well for Liger to be able to handle it. There was a a screw up on a Rana. They they screw up a suplex to the floor. Even the finish looked a little botched when Pillman did the the uh, victory roll type roll up to get the win. The match was really sloppy. It didn't go very long. I think the match went seven minutes. Pillman gets the win, like I said, with a, a, a victory roll. I think Liger only came in for this show, and uh, it made so it made sense for him to lose. I wasn't upset that Jushin Liger lost the match. I don't know. I was underwhelmed by the performance here i remember going if you want to ask me what i thought 25 years ago about this match i was just excited these two guys got in the ring on nitro out of nowhere that didn't happen back then guys didn't just randomly reappear in wcw that you know you had been a giant fan of that you hadn't seen in years so it was huge and to them it was Mm -hmm. just a throwaway match just to get the nitro show over like you never know what you can expect and i'm sure they expected a higher quality match as well
1: yeah, i I think somebody booked it on the pretense of how good their match was at Super brawl too, but like you said Pillman this guy he's pretty large by this point, not in a bad way uh he just developed. yeah, I remember watching seeing this match and i I was expecting Lagger to win uh when I first saw it, uh, just because he did look so much different, and they wasn't really doing with Pillman doing anything with Pillman just yet uh at this point he's kind of just there so uh, when I was younger I I was just expecting Liger to win there but yeah with you man it was real sloppy uh missed quite a few spots Uh, but I will say like just seeing Pillman going off the top rope I still remember that uh, from when it first happened it was something definitely different than what you was going to see on Monday Night Raw outside of maybe the one two three kids um or Shawn Michaels, so this match was completely different than anything you're going to see on Raw. And if wrestling's what you're into, you want to see these two guys. And uh, it's unfortunate they had a pretty rough match, but I like the idea behind it, and I thought they did a good enough job to sell the idea that we're we're going to have a little bit of everything for you.
0: Yeah, and um, you know, I still can't even crap on the match. It was sloppy, but it wasn't like anything terrible. It wasn't you right. know anything good either. It was just it was a match that when it was over, I was like, well, it was it was okay. Just, you know, when you're expecting a a four star classic, you know, you're and you're getting a a one star match. It's, you know, it's a little depressing, disappointing. And I've probably watched this match a few times since then over the last 25 years, but not any time recently. So it was everything I'm going to be watching with you is going to be brand new to me again. I might remember some raw angles a little bit, only because my son just spent the whole summer going through the first five or six years of Raw, and I was in and out of the room a lot. So I might remember some of those things. But other than that, wrestling-wise, watching Nitro and even watching Raw, this is all going to be new to me all over again, like I'm, uh, as far as critiquing matches goes. I wasn't doing that in the 90s so much. I knew if I liked or hated something, but I didn't sit there and critique, like, well, this was sloppy. That's why I didn't like it. And it's it's easier now to go back and look at things like that. And here I was I was surprised it was this sloppy. I didn't remember it being this sloppy. I thought it was just a run-of-the-mill match and it's It really was, even with the, the blown spots. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea of them using this to kick off the show. Very smart. The first thing you see is Jushin Liger come to the ring. You've never watched wrestling before. or You've never watched WCW before, and the first thing you see is this guy in this flashy outfit and doing all these flip moves. And their idea was this was going to be a, a condensed version of their Super Bowl match, I'm assuming. So I'm assuming they, they thought there was going to be this great high-flying action and it's going to catch all the you know casual fans or the WWF fans' eyes and it's it was very smart booking to put this match first, and to to fly Liger over here to do this speaks wonders of what they thought of Liger or what they what they expected from this. Absolutely. Sting bumper promo, just going into a commercial break. Sting's basically putting over a match he has coming up with Ric Flair on this show. Sting versus Ric Flair on TV. Talk about and oh my God! I don't know how many times I'm going to point this out as we do this, especially in the early shows. But this shit didn't happen back then, man. You didn't see this stuff on every week TV. This stuff where they start putting Hogan on every week, or Macho Man on every week, or Sting and against Flair every week. This was not the normal back then. You got a maybe you got a, a Sting versus uh, Bobby Eaton or, or uh, Lex Luger versus uh, Steve Regal or something like that on Saturday night, but you didn't get matches like Sting versus Flair on the day on the weekly, or if at all ever on TV. So I mean, you go from Pillman and Liger to flair and sting to hulk hogan in the main event taking on big bubba rogers that's a world title match on tv against uh, you know a decent name as far as you know i I was a Mm -hmm. huge fan of boss man so it meant more to me than it probably did the average fan but your show is stacked this this was unheard of so it was a eh, good job putting the card together because you can't go wrong with flair and sting but we'll get to that match in a minute because before that match happens we get a hulk hogan shameless plug for pasta mania and pasta mania like it was like a restaurant in the food court of this mall and maybe other malls too i don't know basically hogan had nothing to do with it they just slapped his his identity onto it put his name on it and called it pasta mania it kind of worked like the foreman grill the story goes with the foreman grill was hogan was originally the guy the guy that was supposed to do the foreman grill but his agent turned it down and then george foreman wound up getting the foreman grill deal so it would have been hogan's grill and For those who don't know, when that came out, that thing was huge. Foreman probably made
1: a gazillion dollars off that thing. So Hogan really missed.
0: I was going to say Hogan missed the boat is
1: what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. I I probably had like six of those grills over my lifetime. Great product. So, yeah, I think Hogan ended up with a blender that went nowhere. Right.
0: (laughs) And so, I mean, you know, but here he is, shameless chill. He's standing in pasta mania in the food court. He's surrounded by kids. More shameless nonsense. And he's trying to put over the restaurant more than he is his match. He's asking about, hey, you're taking on Big Bubba tonight. He's, Big Bubba's an afterthought. I don't think he even mentions him by name. He keeps looking back and referencing the pasta menu. He doesn't know what's on his own damn pasta menu. So he has to look back at it and read, it, read off the names of some of the dishes. And he's putting it over. And he's not bringing the power of Hulkamania to the ring tonight. He's bringing the power of Pasta Mania to the ring tonight. Just absolutely disgusting, shameless shit here by hulk hogan putting over his crappy restaurant or whatever the hell you want to call that
1: yeah get you some pasta ruse and <laughs> pasta use or something stupid yeah. yeah this is a complete waste of time
0: and jimmy hart of course tagging right along with hogan this was stupid it was cheap it was carny which is perfect for hogan and jimmy hart two of the biggest hucksters and carnies in the entire business we go back to action because this is a one-hour show so we're right back into action Sting and Ric Flair now, this match goes about 11 minutes, so they get a little bit of time to work here. Pillman and Liger, I think, got about seven minutes. This one is paint-by-numbers, Sting and Flair. We've seen this so many times, it just feels like it's expected. It's just two of the top stars having a perfectly fine match, another run-of-the-mill match. Flair plays the bump machine here as usual, takes the slam off the top, takes a press slam from Sting, takes a beel from Sting. They do the old uh, bridge up off the ground into the backslide spot. Nothing fancy or big time here, but it was fun to see a match like this on TV. Yeah, it sure beat Mabel versus Diesel anyway.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think everything beats Mabel versus Diesel.
0: But before this match gets going, and, and don't forget, and don't worry everybody, I did not forget about this. As the match is about to get underway, Lex Luger appears walking down the aisle. And that was the biggest takeaway from this show and at that point, maybe the biggest thing I had ever seen on TV. You want to talk about a shoot. Lex Luger was still on WWF programming at this point. Davy Boy Smith was his tag team partner. Davy Boy had just turned heel. I remember that weekend them promoting that Lex Luger will be here next week on Superstars to discuss, you know, basically Davy Boy's heel turn. Needless to say, Lex Luger didn't appear on next week's Superstars, even though it had already been recorded. They made sure to edit that out. Can you imagine if that had aired after the fact? But yeah. here, here's here's Lex Luger walking out into the aisle on the initial or the inaugural episode of of Monday Nitro, and even Vince McMahon didn't know about it. And uh, if you watch the uh, WWE Network documentaries and the Monday Night War episodes that they put on there. You'll get some uh, takeaways from guys like Pat Patterson and a few other guys that nobody had realized that Lex Luger's contract had ended. How do you have a guy up, high up, that high up, on your roster, and you don't pay attention that this guy's not under contract? I'm sure there were negotiations going on. So I'm sure they kind of knew it was expiring, but how do you let him just completely go? How do you not have like an extension or something for 30 days or whatever? I I, I couldn't believe that. And then we'll talk a little more about how this came into play. But I'm just curious your your thoughts.
1: People by now know I'm a big Wes Luger fan. So I was like, I was hooked you know, on everything that was going on in wrestling in 95, even though it was a down year. Um, as a kid, you just eat it up. So like like most people, they just saw Luger on Raw maybe a couple weeks prior or, or Superstar or something like that. And then all of a sudden, he shows up back on WCW and it's like, holy shit. These guys are here to play. Uh, They're not messing around, and they're they're going balls to the wall to make things happen. And the key takeaway to all of it, yeah, Lex Luger came back. That's great. I just thought the whole angle was perfect. Like, Bischoff was making it appear that he wasn't supposed to happen, and they need to get him off camera. Like, get this guy off camera right now, and he's just yelling. But I think that the key takeaway to this whole thing is that you need to tune into Nitro because you have no idea who's going to show up. You have no idea what's going to happen. And, um, and it just makes you not want to miss an episode, at least for the first few to see if this continues to happen.
0: Yeah. And if they don't drive that into the ground before this episode's over, and we will continue to discuss that as the next several segments take place, as far as people just randomly popping up out of nowhere. Um, first of all, we already, we already saw Jushin Liger. Now we see Lex Luger, which don't get me wrong. Not even it's night and day. It's apples and oranges. Jushin Liger worked for new Japan, came over, worked a match. Okay. That was, that was great. Lex Luger showing up here straight off of WWF television from that weekend was like, mm-hmm. this is not supposed to happen. What the hell is going on here? You almost kind of wondered, are they are they in cahoots now? Are they working together? This doesn't seem, even as a you know a sixteen year old here just getting into AOL and things like that. There wasn't a whole lot of news and things, and I had just discovered the that the Observer existed in 1995, and I still didn't have my own copies, so that wasn't something I saw weekly either so this happening it just shocked the hell out of me and i didn't really have any answers for it at the time it was just something that i don't know man it it was it was huge i unless you lived it i it's just one of those things you can't stress so i'm not going to sit here and dwell on it for 20 minutes trying to get it over it was just at that point probably the biggest thing that i can think of that ever happened in professional Ooh. wrestling as far as a, a guy jumping you know the best way yeah. I can, best way i can put that would be like uh, Hulk Hogan worked SummerSlam. Let's say SummerSlam 89, beat Zeus and Macho Man. And the next week he showed up on TBS. Now Luger's not Hulk Hogan level, but maybe if I use Hulk Hogan as an example, you guys can kind of grasp how huge this was. Like what the hell just happened? And that's basically what happened here. And it was a shots fired. And I guess the story goes that Sting played the middleman. Sting had been a good friend of Luger going back to the 80s and Sting kind of talked Luger into jumping. Sting played yeah. the middleman. He went and talked to Bischoff. He asked Bischoff to hire him. Bischoff's been very candid that he never cared for Lex Luger the person or Lex Luger the wrestler, so he wasn't really interested in bringing Luger in. Obviously, I'm sure he loved how he did it. So he offered, he lowballed Luger, offered him hundred thousand dollars, and thinking Luger wouldn't agree to it, and he could tell Sting, "Well, I tried," but Luger said, "Okay," because Luger saw the future there. He saw money there in Hogan and Savage and all these other top guys that he could he could go work with. So he agreed to the hundred grand and he got signed. And the only thing Bischoff asked was that he not tell anyone. And so that's basically what happened here. And he showed up he, the way he says it. He got to the building. He was told to get to the building 30 minutes before he came out. They left towels on his face and head until he was told to walk out. So at no point did anybody know he was there.
1: That's awesome. I mean, that's the type of stuff you had to do. And I know you don't like to work the boys, but you don't want this to leak to anybody is that that's just gonna ruin the moment it's crazy like you said he just filmed a small few with mabel for that weekend where he got attacked by men on a mission and david boy smith and next thing you know he's on nitro and vince had to go in and edit all that crap out for all the syndication that he sent out and
0: i mean talk about an upgrade you go from working with fucking king mabel to (laughs) working here you know on top with hogan in a week or so
1: right away yeah exactly hey And some of the other good stuff that they did during this match, uh, Luger left, and then Bischoff on commentary was like, there's chaos in the locker room because Luger showed up. So, I mean, yeah, you don't see it. You never do see it. But saying those things like that just makes you think, okay, maybe they may show it. So, you don't, again, you don't want to turn the channel. Bischoff was so far ahead of that game of saying things and doing little things to keep people to tune in to where you don't want to change the channel and that's the whole game here as far as this war goes
0: bischoff was a salesman to begin with not just in wrestling just a salesman in general he knew how to sell things and Mm -hmm. keep people's interest in whatever product he was selling so he understood that that extent of it and i'll give him credit for that i think that luger's defect from the wf wcw is is underrated i think a lot of people always look at hall and nash and the nwo and i'm not saying lex luger jumping to wcw is bigger than the nwo obviously that's ridiculous but luger's jump may have been bigger than hall and nash's jump maybe not in long term and what they did for the company but in shock value because we knew months or i knew months before nash debuted i knew in january that nash was going to wcw i'd heard it on these we had a a local newspaper and in every weekend you could call this a newspaper quick line and you punched in a four-digit code and you can get your horoscope. You can get the weather. You can get sports news. You can get this and that and the other. And there was a guy that did uh, a two or three minute summary of like basically. He probably read the Observer and then read it out on the, the you know, the bullet points on his news things. Mm-hmm. What he probably did. And he said Kevin Nash is leaving the WWF. He's going to WCW. Scott Hall will follow. And my jaw dropped. Diesel and and Scott and Razor Ramon are leaving. They're like the top, Like I was concerned for the company. I was like, how is yeah. how are two of their main eventers? I'd heard this way before it had really leaked, leaked, like, you know, to where more people knew about it. So I couldn't believe it. I'd hoped it was a lie. I'm like, this guy's insane. What is he on? This can't even be true. So I knew about it before it happened. So it wasn't as big of a shock factor as this Luger thing, which they re- that alone sealed the deal for this first Nitro. And uh,
1: I think so too. But it's like you uh, said, I wonder Luger... what Nitro would have been if Luger, they didn't have something like Luger coming over. And again, we're not saying Luger is this great star that is going to push ratings and things like that. That has nothing to do with it, really. It's the fact that he was on WWF TV a week prior. He just shot an angle, and this dude's on TV for the rival company a week later. Like That's unheard of. It did not happen. Stuff between these companies happened behind the scenes where, unless you read The Observer, you have no idea what happened. This was live in your face on TV we just stole one of your top stars, a guy you pushed for months to be your top guy. Now he's on our show. Right. Going against your other old top guy. So this was monumental. This was huge.
0: So we uh, do have a match in the ring though. And uh, so they, they do this because they're, they're only working on an hour of time. So they're, they're pushing things together, having Luger debut at the same time we have a match in the ring. So there's no downtime in between anything that's going on. And, so Lex Luger walks away after coming out and cr- crossing his arms and looking into the ring for a couple seconds or whatever. And there there was a smattering of Luger chants in the crowd, so that's when I knew that okay, there's some wrestling fans here. At least they know who who Luger is and what the hell is going on. So Luger takes off, the match goes on. It goes basically the way I said. Then Arn Anderson comes out, which Arn had already been part of the company, so that wasn't a huge deal, but it's just like, wait, Luger was just out here. Now it felt like Luger's just out here a minute ago. Now Arn Anderson's out here and they're playing into another storyline of Arn and Flair kind of separating. Flair's the heel, the partier, and the story they're trying to tell here, which I mean it plays out a little differently in the in the long run, but is that Arn's basically turning face on Flair. We don't know exactly which side he's on yet at this point, as Flair's in the ring with Sting. Sting becomes distracted because Arn comes to ring side. That allows Flair to clip Sting's leg, put him in the figure four. Flair starts using the ropes to cheat. Arn Anderson gets in the ring. The hold's broken, and Arn actually proceeds to get into it with Flair rather than Sting. So we now know what side Arn Anderson's on, at least at this moment. Um, Flair takes a shot first. Arn fires back, chases Flair off. We wonder what's going to happen between Arn and Sting, because Arn comes back to ring side. But Arn only comes back to retrieve his jacket, doesn't interact with Sting. He leaves the ring. Next thing we know... There's a guy up Bobby Heenan's ass on the outside. It's Scott Flash Norton out of nowhere. He hadn't been on WCW TV since he was there for a very, very brief cup of coffee in ninety-three prior to Slamboree. And he's out there shouting, he's he's handing Bischoff papers, stuffed papers in Bischoff's vest. I assumed it was supposed to be a contract, a WCW contract. That's what I got out of it anyway. So Norton stuffs that in there. He's 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 basically issuing an open challenge. He wants to make a name for himself. 30 seconds later, Randy Savage is up Norton's ass. You want, you want a, you want a piece of me, man? Yeah, right there. You want it? You want it? Let's do it right now. Do the thing, you know? And huh. Norton's all like, all right, let's go. And Bischoff's like, no, not right here. Not, not here. Not right now. So in the matter of a match, the Sting and Flair match, we get Lex Luger, Arn Anderson, Scott Norton, and then Randy Savage. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. It was absolutely overbooked but they were determined to get all this shit in on the show.
1: Yeah, uh you can't you can't blink or you're going to miss something important. Um I know Arn and Flair they're kind of building towards their match at Fall Brawl, which is like a week or two away. So that's what was going on there. Scott Norton, yeah, I mean, a lot of people probably don't even know who he is uh at that point. Um he was just a big a big big looking dude. It's just a nice way to debut somebody. I know they didn't really do much with Norton after his first couple of episodes, but uh I thought it was cool. Like, just random people just showing up. Like, who the hell is this guy? He's freaking huge. I want to see him work. Yeah, you have your name, guys. Like you said, Liger, Luger, um, some others. And then these dudes that you may not know uh, unless you are a hardcore wrestling fan or reading The Observer. Or the, just the Aftermaggs in general. There's no rest for the wicked on this show.
0: Yeah, and it's so funny to see Luger and Norton both debut uh, basically in the same segment, yet they have nothing to do with each other. Luger debuts at the beginning of the segment. Norton debuts at the end of the segment. Norton doesn't even really have time to get over why he's out there and Savage is already up his ass to challenge him. So it was definitely rushed. They had you know time time restraints on them, So they had to do with, you know what they had to do in the little bit of time that they could do it in. So I don't fault them for that. It just felt like this, like Norton's debut here after Luger, I mean, he's following Luger. This could have waited till next week. Like I would have saved this for next week. But I think they were just trying to get as much as they could on one show to, like, really get you to go, what the hell's going to happen next week?
1: Yeah, I think they really wanted to build towards next week's card. So this match is next week, and then no spoilers, but there's another match next week.
0: <laughs> we kick off with Liger, then we see Luger, Scott Norton, and they're not even done yet. Up next, Eric Bischoff throws us to a video package of Sabu. And for anyone who followed Sabu in ECW or saw him after ECW, I mean, you don't understand how over Sabu was in this era, 94, 95. And yeah, when he went back to ECW 96, he was over, he was over, he was in ECW though. So you don't really notice it as much because it's ECW. He's over like any of the other top baby faces are over there. But I can't begin to explain to you, you ever heard the term internet darling, which always describes, you know, the indie guys that hadn't made it yet, that were so over with the internet fans. Well, there wasn't really much of an internet back then. Sabu was just the independent darling. He was the PWI darling. If you opened a PWI, Sabu had an article in there. There were pictures of Sabu in there. There was stories about Sabu in there. I hadn't seen Sabu until 1995. I went down to, um, my my mom had a new house built about two hours south of here. It's in the middle of nowhere. And they had like one channel. They didn't have cable yet down there. So you just got whatever you got on reception and, and it was in the middle of nowhere. So they had like one channel and it was snowy. And we turned, me and my brother turned on the TV one Saturday morning and Sabu came out on this random indie show that probably didn't last more than a couple months. I, it was, it was just a generic show. I don't even know what promotion it was supposed to be, but he, he went out there and he worked uh, a guy by the name of UBAS, which was Sabu backwards, later became El Puerto Ricanio and did that Babu gimmick there in the WWE as well? He was fighting Uboss, which was his clone. He was basically Sabu backwards, and I was like, "Holy, holy cow!" Like this is Sabu. This is the Sabu we've been reading about in the after mags for months, if not a couple of years. So that's my only—that's the only thing I'd seen of him then. Other than that, it was the after magazines that built guys up like Public Enemy and Sabu to levels that you know beyond what you could imagine because those magazines were. And very important back then to getting the indie guys over. Because if you couldn't see them, because they weren't nationally exposed, you didn't know they existed unless they were in those magazines. And by the time I ever saw Public Enemy and Sabu, they were as over as anybody that I saw on the fucking WWF every week. It was huge to be able to see these guys finally. So when I saw Sabu was coming, and then there was this highlight video, and it was just a couple of matches he had done at a taping somewhere. Most of the spots seemed to be with Chris Canyon sabu's was doing all of his flip move, uh, flipping spots, his jump off the chair, leg lariat. Now I have more video to put to this guy, and I already know I'd I, I'd gotten a, a King of Death match tape that year. That was first year I bought tapes out of an aftermag. and I'd gotten a, another tape that had Sabu's uncle the Sheik teaming with Sabu in a match where Sabu had moonsaulted a table for no reason. There was nobody on it. I. I was like this guy is freaking amazing. Now later on my opinion changed on his style, but at this point I had never seen anything like this. This was huge. First Luger jumps, now Sabu is here. What the hell? This was awesome.
1: Yeah, it was good stuff. And the thing is it's like it's all different people. You know, Lager is one type of wrestler, Luger's one type of guy, Scott Norton's completely different than both of them. To a degree. And then Sabu is just different than everybody. So you're not getting the same cookie cutter, you know, wrestler coming to town. It's all different types. There's something for everybody. It's a smorgasbord of wrestlers and different types of wrestlers. There's something for everyone. And uh, that's what Bischoff did with this first episode. And I thought he hit it out of the park.
0: So the debuting names continue to mount here on this first episode of Monday Nitro because it still doesn't end with Sabu. Next, we have a vignette with Mr. Wall Street, also known as Michael Wall Street. Here, you may remember that gimmick from Mike Rotunda uh, in the York Foundation right before he jumped to the WWF as IRS. So now Wall Street, or now IRS Wall Street Rotunda, whatever you want to call it, now he's here. And how many debuts can you do in a row? I, th- this has to be a record for debuts in a row or debuts on one single television program. Um, So I'm thinking IRS is scripted here, which we've, we've mentioned on the grenade in the past in 89, maybe Rotunda should have been scripted because he's saying things that are clearly directed right at the WWF. He said, there's talk of the new generation. It's the few generation to him. He says, he's sure the IRS is going to be watching him real close. If this wasn't a direct shot at Vince, I don't know what was.
1: Yeah, that's all it was. Uh, They just used him to push the agenda of what this show is going to be all about. And that's, we're going to war with Vince by any means necessary. Uh, that's kind of what they were signaling with this promo. It felt like.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm always happy guys can find work. I was happy Rotunda got some work after leaving the WWF in the in the summer. It was I was just sad that Eric Bischoff used guys like Rotunda to just take liberties uh, take liberties at Vince. We get a video of the upcoming double main event on Saturday night, and this just shows you the different levels of Nitro compared to Saturday Night because on Nitro we get. Hogan defending the world title against Big Bubba. We get Sting and Flair on Saturday night. It's Lex Luger and Sting taking on. It was Lex Luger, right? Was that the? Was that the? Yeah. So they already knew that Luger was. <laughs> he was already putting a match. Lex Luger and Sting taking on the Blue Bloods. That was their main event. Also on the show, Johnny B. Bad taking on Dick Slater. That was your Saturday, and that, my friends, is the comparison of what we normally got on Saturday night versus what we were getting here on Nitro
1: night and day two completely different worlds it almost feels like
0: so we go to our world championship match it's Hulk Hogan defending against Big Bubba Rogers match goes about seven minutes which is average for a Hulk Hogan match pretty much on any level so uh, unless it's a Ric Flair or something like that so no big shocker here and this and I thought about this the entire show but it was no no more prominent than in this match because of the size the the height of Hogan and, and big Bubba. The ring seems different here. The bumping, the, the give in the ring had already been noticeably be different. I thought it looked shorter, but here I knew at this point, I knew it. The ropes were definitely shorter as well because they came up the Hulk Hogan's waistline. So they were using a different ring here. I don't know if it had something to do with needing to fit in a certain area of the mall or what was going on, but definitely a different ring compared to what we'll see next week and beyond. Bubba was overselling for Hogan uh, here to make it look really good. Hogan loved working with familiar guys. He had that run with boss man in the WWF in 88, 89, and he knew he could trust boss man. So Bubba even sells things that miss like repeatedly. At one point he runs supposed to run into a boot to the face from Hogan in the corner. It's clear. Hogan completely whiffed. Didn't even touch him. Bubba still sold it, took the bump, held his face, everything. Uh, there's another point where Hogan whips him to the corner, charges him with a clothesline. Bubba takes the clothesline twice. Problem is Hogan only threw it once. So Bubba slams himself backwards into the the buckles twice on the spot. I thought it was funny. I'm gonna I'm gonna I want to grab a GIF of that one and throw it up on Twitter. It just it really it really tickled me. Austin's
1: working hard for his buddy. Yeah, yeah. And, you gotta uh, appreciate that.
0: Yeah, that's what I wrote in my notes. Bless his heart, he's doing everything he can to get Hogan over. The match didn't even feel real to me though. Like I'm watching it, I, I couldn't get into it. Like it just didn't feel real. Which it's weird because. The opener felt real to me. Lex Luger coming out felt real to me. Like I was a wrestling fan. Like I had wrestling fan mind turn on when I was watching these things happen. But I'm sitting here watching this match here, and um, it just felt like it wasn't going full speed. Like almost they were like practicing a match or whatever. And and it's not necessarily slow. It's just I don't know. I don't I don't really know how to explain what it was. It just it didn't feel like a real competition to me. It never felt like Hogan was ever in any trouble.
1: Yeah, um, it almost felt like uh, was just waiting for something to happen. You knew this wasn't going to last long as far as the actual match. Uh Bubba had no shot. We all knew that. They're just kind of going through the motions until the finish.
0: And we go into the finish. Things pick up a little bit. Bubba goes after Jimmy Hart. He takes Jimmy Hart's jacket off him. It's all up, uh, set up so Hogan can take the jacket, put it over Bubba's face, and pound on Bubba's face in the corner while Jimmy Hart distracts the referee. How that's a babyface spot, I'll never know, but... Hogan was big on doing, like, heel things like that, and, and the crowd ate it up.
1: Yeah, Meltzer don't like this, and I don't, I think Lance Storm even said he don't like it, where good guys are, like, raking eyes or going to the back and scraping their back. To me, it's just, like, you're fighting fire with fire, and so I never really had an issue with it. Hogan's just doing what's being done to him, so if one guy can do it, why can't I? I understand the dynamic of heel and face, but at the same time, you want to, don't get mad, get even type deal. So why not do what they're doing? Fair is fair. So I never had a problem with it.
0: Yeah, and at this point in Hogan's career, he's wanting to take every move as lightly as possible. I have no doubt that he's going to these guys for the matches and telling them to take it easy out there, brother. Uh, Because Boss Man hits the Boss Man Slam out of nowhere. But it was the gingerest, softest, nicest Boss Man Slam I had ever seen. And this would happen often with Hogan. Throughout this WCW run, which was really noticeable because it was in the main event, but we'd grown up to know NWA and WCW as the really physical promotion. But not only that, even the WWF, everything looked real. But uh, Hogan, man, he would take these terrible or these bumps off these moves, and and it would just look so phony. And it was just to protect his body, and I, I you know, and he's still not in great shape today. And all he ever did was drop a leg, which I know I'm sure it screwed up his his hip quite a bit. But yeah, I, did, I, I didn't like it. It was a really really I can't call it sloppy or lazy. I mean, he just he gave him a boss man slam, but it's just like he sat him down gently with it. Uh, of course, that leads to the famous two count, which leads to the Hulk up, the big boot, the leg drop. Hogan gets the win. Match goes seven minutes. Competitive Hogan match for TV. And we get a finish. There wasn't some stupid run-in, so they're booking finishes. So I can't, can't complain there either. Uh, you don't get those every day on TV, so you do now. At least that's what Nitro is putting across this week anyway.
1: Yeah, it's a big name main event. I think it did what everybody thought it was going to do. And it was just an avenue to get to where they were going to go. Kind of push the pay-per-view and then set up next week. So, I mean, after everything that happened leading up to this, it just felt like I need a break. And thank God Hogan's out here, which is crazy to say. Right. It's Hogan. You didn't see him all the time. Even in WWF, you you hardly ever saw him. You had to pay to see Hogan. I was ready for a break when it came. Yeah, I mean,
0: after Luger and Norton and Sabu and Mike Rotunda randomly appearing, it was nice to see a couple guys that you knew were on the roster, at least for a few minutes, you knew what the hell you were watching and and your mind wasn't being screwed with. So, yeah, in that that respect, I agree with you. It was a nice change of pace, and I didn't have to, like, be on the lookout, (laughs) you know, so much. Um, Hogan gets the win here with the leg drop, and immediately after he hits the leg drop, the Dungeon of Doom come running to the ring to attack him. And, uh, as the camera cuts to the aisle, we see Brutus Beefcake looking as only ridiculous as he can look in the Zodiac costume, running down an aisle in the mall with Kamala following behind him, barefoot running down the mall. It was the most ridiculous looking bit of video you could ever ask for. That's another GIF all day long, watching Zodiac and Kamala run through a mall, Kamala barefoot. Just, I was laughing and I didn't laugh out loud, man, but inside my head, dude, I was, I was laughing my ass off. It looks, again, it looks so hokey, see this ridiculous and uh, just cartoony, which the, is what the Dungeon yeah. of Doom was, very cartoony, and everything that, WCW had spent years trying to not be cartoony, and this is what we had done and within a year's time, thanks to Hogan coming in, but, you know, that's what happens when, you know, Hogan's involved.
1: It's a far cry from what we're seeing over on the Memory Grenade, for sure.
0: Yeah, and uh, so anyways... Hogan gets jumped by the Dungeon of Doom, but Luger's quickly out to make the save. So Lex Luger is back out for the second time here because we're wondering, is he a heel or face? He kind of came out. He was a baby face in the WWF USA. He showed up here. His mannerisms made you wonder, was he a face or heel when he was out there at the beginning of the Sting match? Then we learn he's teaming with Sting to take on the Blue Bloods on Saturday night. So, okay, I guess he's a baby face, but Luger comes in, makes a save for Hogan. Then Hogan and Luger, they clear the ring and then they turn around and almost deck each other. They pull their punches. Sting and Randy Savage are quickly in the ring to try to separate the two when we head into a commercial break. And we go into our final segment of the night, which is the commonplace Mean Gene Okerlund interview time in the ring. He has both Hulk Hogan and Lex over the ring. Hogan's not really receptive of Luger appearing here. He basically tells Luger he doesn't belong here. This is Hogan's yard, which is hilarious to think that Hogan was in the WWF from 84 to 93. Uh, Luger was in the WWF for, you know, a couple years, two and a half years or whatever. And Hogan's saying that WCW's his yard. What the hell's Luger doing in this place? So I found that pretty funny.
1: Yeah, it is um, pretty funny. Luger is definitely in NWA from, what, 87 until 93? left. 92? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, five years. Hogan's been here less than a year or a little bit over a year at this point. And he thinks yeah. he runs the show, which he probably did. He definitely did.
0: <laughs> sure sure, he did. He did the minute he signed that contract.
1: <laughs> exactly. But, it was all his way or no way, so. He's not wrong. Numbers-wise, yeah, he's wrong, but contract-wise and Hogan-wise, yeah, he's wrong. He's right.
0: So Luger responds to Hogan by explaining why he's here. He's here to take Hogan's belt. He wants to prove he's the best. He makes it very clear that this is the only world championship that matters. Lex tells Hogan he's been down the same roads as Hulk. He's wrestled the same people. He's beaten the same people. He's tired of playing with the kids, meaning the WWF. He's here to get it on with the big boys. Hogan tells Luger to stick his stinky palm out and shake his hand. He doesn't have to wait uh, for a title shot because Luger, Luger kind of went off a little bit on the rails for me when he said, I don't care if I have to wait a year or five years, I'm going to get my title shot. It was like, "That's eh, not really, is that really what you want to wait for? You want to wait five years to get a title shot? So <laughs> Hogan tells him,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, or six years you won't be. <laughs> Hard to imagine Nitro's picking off here and, and they don't even last another six years. That's Crazy. Insane. But so Hogan, Hogan tells him, buddy, you don't have to wait. I'll give you your title shot next week. And so now we already know next week on Nitro, our main event is world champion Hulk Hogan taking on a guy who was just in the WWF basically yesterday, Lex Luger. So that was really, really huge.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a great way to end the show. It got me pumped for the next week. What a way to finish it. You end the show with Hogan, Luger, Sting, and uh, Savage. Macho Man yeah. in the and ring what a, together. What a visual. And, uh, what a yeah, visual. It, it's just insane. Kudos to Bischoff for finishing that up, setting that up, and getting it done.
0: And I don't know that Bischoff would have ever booked Hogan and Luger on the second ever Nitro if they weren't going up against Raw next week, because that's their very first week that they go up against Raw. So very smart booking there by whoever booked. I know Bischoff said he never really had a hand in booking, per se. He might have thrown out some bullet points of where they needed to go, but he wasn't really the guy who did the booking. He said that was never really his thing. So I don't really know who all was involved. I know Kevin Sullivan did a lot of the booking during Hogan's era because Hogan trusted Kevin. Kevin created all these cartoon characters for Hogan. Hogan got to work all these guys that he was familiar with, that he knew would protect them, take care of him. That's why we seen Earthquake come in. We saw Kamala come in. Brutus Beefcake, obviously I don't even have to explain that one. Haku, Ming, whatever. I think that's the only reason Ming even joined the Dungeon of Doom was because Hogan knew him and trusted him. So that's what we got out of that. But yeah, so that's the end of Nitro. Huge, huge impression on me. I I was like worried for the... Even though I had watched the NWA... Uh, sporadically throughout the late 80s. I caught it when I was able to get get on the living room television and watch it. And I even have a funny story I'll save for another time about what else I had to do to sneak. Not really sneak. I wasn't not allowed to watch it. It's just that I couldn't use the TV all the time. We had one TV initially that just had cable on it. Uh, So I'd actually go to a neighbor's house and watch it. But uh, it's a funny story and I'll, I'll get to that in another episode. Anyways, by 1990, though, I was a religious WCW fan. I watched it every week, whatever I had to do. I remember we at one point my family had a cookout or something going on. Maybe it was like a holiday type deal. I don't really remember, but everybody was outside in the backyard having a cookout. I was inside. It was an evening. It was, it was getting dark. I was watching a clash of the champions. They had to come in and get me two or three times to get me to come back outside. And I had to keep pretending like I was going to go to the bathroom or something. So I could go back inside and keep watching clash of the champions. So I was a huge, that was back in 1990, but I was a huge WCW fan. So I followed them, but I was always a WWF loyalist. I'm from the north and i saw it first and i don't know it just it was i was the loyalist so even though i love wcw if you had to pick a team at this point i was i was picking wwf so i worried for them even though i enjoyed wcw i worried for the wwf here and this works out because i think wf is pulling in 2.5s 2.6s or something like that around this time and the fear was would enough people follow over to watch it and the initial nitro rating the debut nitro draws a 2.9 rating a lot of people thought, well, there's no way that all the WWF fans carried over just to watch Nitro because Raw wasn't on. The fact, and you'll find this out as we go week to week, and the fact of the matter is WCW had its own fans. The WWF had its own fans. They both wind up pulling a lot of 2.5s, 2.4s, 2.6s, so there wasn't a lot of switchover early on. So it's kind of intriguing to know that these two promotions basically had their own fan bases because they were different products.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is crazy to think that in 1995, when, you know, cable was, I mean, it's pretty, pretty commonplace at that point. Um, but you had enough audience out there, You basically have five, a five rating, essentially, uh, worth of people. And to the fact like you mentioned just a little bit ago, within six years, this company's out of business. And within 15 years, WWE and WWF has wasted all of it. So It tells you what people were feeling and thinking at the time in 1995. I I thought this show was tremendous. It was fast paced. It was crazy. It was unpredictable. To me, it just felt completely different than the WWF show. Yeah, it's all wrestling, but they're two totally different things. And I I think what this show presented was an uh, an option. Uh, You could pick what you want to watch. And I think in 1995, that's what wrestling fans were looking for. They wanted a choice. And as you can see, there was wrestling needed for ww and there was wrestling needed for wwf and they each had their fans like you mentioned and the choice was kind of you know they stuck with what they like but and we all know that changes later on but it, it's just crazy to think about that two wrestling shows could have a 2.5 rating consistently right. every week it's insane usa and fox would like die for a 2.5 rating today
0: Yeah, and I mean, ratings have changed a lot since then as well because of all the internet and the DVR and everything like and the streaming services and stuff. So ratings are very different anyway, but I I agree with you. I'm sure ratings are still very, very, very much lower than than they were back then. So we'll move on. And oh, you know what? Before we go, what was your favorite segment or match of the show?
1: Uh, It has to be Lex Luger. Um, Yeah, I think that's that's the obvious choice, Luger, (laughs) Luger debuting. Yeah,
0: But I had to ask because I want to do that every week.
1: Yeah, it's it's not like I said it's not because I'm a fan. It's just it was earth shattering at the time. I I remember looking over at my friend because we watched this together, and I was like, "Holy cow, dude, that's Lex Luger." He was just on WWE. What the heck's going on? Like we had no idea what was going on. Um, and it still sticks out to me today. Like I still remember it happening, and that's all that matters. Those are the moments we're talking about.
0: And uh, yeah, I mean, same thing. And I already explained as b- best I could of how huge the impact was of Luger debuting here earlier in this show. So I won't go all the way back into it again. But yeah, I don't think you can argue that that wasn't the biggest moment on this show and probably, uh, you know, for the, until Hall and Nash show, probably the biggest thing to happen on the show, unless you, you know, you count the, uh, the Medusa segment and, uh, you know, in a few months, we'll move on to the next week. It's Monday Nitro and WWF Raw, the first head-to-head ever competition between the two programs. And we're going to start with Nitro here, if that's okay with you, Steve.
1: Yeah, I went Nitro overall Nitro, but we can go Nitro, Nitro overall. I'm cool with that. Yeah, I, that I, makes sense to me.
0: I felt like that was what I initially thought would we could do, not be monotonous, but I, I felt the flow here better. So mm-hmm. I like. I think we'll go Nitro, and then now we'll do Nitro and Raw. I think we're in Miami. I do apologize. We just started mm-hmm. this podcast, and I... uh I didn't get all the information I like to normally get about a program, but I think I heard the word Miami pop up here early in the show. So I'm pretty sure we're we're in Miami, Florida for this episode. This is the weekend, uh, the Monday of September 11th, by the way, uh, 1995. Right out of the gate, we learned that Vader's gone from WCW. There were some contractual issues there, some other issues with Vader. I and mean, so now War Games will change because it was originally going to be the Dungeon of Doom, taking on Hogan, Savage, Sting, and the newly baby-faced Vader. And now Vader's gone from the company. So we're in a pickle here. We're in a dilemma. Uh, we'll see what happens by the end of the show to change that.
1: So they kind of tied in for all War Games by saying he went AWOL. He didn't get his papers done. Even Paul Orndorf had a little fiasco. <laughs> right.
0: So we kick off the show. Last week, they had promised Sabu would be coming in, and he's here. Uh, right out of the gate, Alex Wright in the ring against Sabu, and what a fucking four-minute match, dude. Just what a match for four minutes. I mean, it wasn't the, the most uh, well-told story, but he used to be called the human highlight reel, and if you were just going out there to show off your highlights, this accomplished everything for Sabu.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. He he he! Hit almost every single one of his major spots in four minutes, and yeah. it was just awesome
0: somersault senton springboard leg lariat jumped off a chair and uh smashed uh alex right up against the railing with the or did he miss i can't remember now i think, I think he, he missed, missed. He missed yeah. The leg. yeah yeah he missed because he goes this is funny I, I this is how i took it anyway he goes to pick up the chair and he brings it towards right and right looks like he's about to run away sabu has to go get right and go no no i'm not gonna hit you with it and he, he puts him up against the the guardrail and then you know runs at him and launches off the chair and Right moves and Sabu had set the spot up to miss in order to get himself just take a, a, a stupid bump. Basically. Yeah, it was, it was, it, it was incredible. He mauled Alex Wright early and I loved, and I didn't, and I hated Alex Wright. I hated Alex Wright when he debuted. I didn't care for him here. Probably my least favorite guy on the roster at this point. I didn't like the way they pushed him. Didn't like the stupid dance. Didn't like the fact that, in a, you know, I was a kid. Didn't like the fact that he couldn't speak better English if they were trying to push him to the level they were trying to push him at. And I'm talking about when he first came in, not at this point, um, because they were really pushing him hard, working Flair on Saturday night and everything like that when he first came in. Um, But it was like the first baby face, and I I, I always liked Heels too, but it was like the first baby face that I just loathed, other than maybe the Bushwhackers, that I just had no interest in watching. And so uh, I was curious to see what he would do here. He took all of Sabu's stuff, I'll give him credit for that, but... I love that Wright was able to come back. He dished it out. He fought back stiff. And I think a lot of that plays into his father being Steve Wright. Steve Wright is a European, I think he was a German, grew up in England though, or maybe he was English and grew up in Germany. I don't really remember. Steve Wright was an awesome wrestler. I mean, the best of acrobatics and technical wrestling and just one of that European style, but like one of the best. If you can ever watch anything Steve Wright did, either from Europe or Japan, I mean, it's a treat. You're not going to be disappointed. Anyways, Alex Wright, not so much. Wasn't really into him. Loved the drop kick off the top rope from Wright though. He oh, yeah. hits a missile drop kick. I swear if he wasn't twelve feet in the air when he got up there, I don't know how high he was. It looked sick.
1: Yeah, and it, it was like it looked almost like in slow motion. He was so tall, and then like when he extended his legs out, it just looked like it was in slow motion. He got some elevation on that. It was just, it was an awesome spot. One thing I do want to point out here, <laughs> when Sabu missed the leg thing in the rail. Right. Bobby Heenan said, uh, "Sabu is the happiest he has ever been." <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah, he, just loves he gets it. Perfect. Yeah, he
0: got it. It's that cactus Jack mentality. Like he loves yeah. pain. Or, or yeah, Heenan was great, man. Um, uh, There's another. You know, while you're while we're talking to announcers, I didn't want to forget this. Mongo makes an ass of himself right at the beginning of the match. It might have been before the match even started. Bischoff starts trying to put over Sabu's heritage. Sabu is the nephew, legit nephew of the Sheik, the original Sheik Ed Farhat from Detroit. Bischoff starts talking about growing up in Detroit and growing up on the Sheik, who you don't understand how high up this guy was as a heel. Like, he was one of the top heels, the scariest heels in the history of professional wrestling, decades on top. And Bischoff starts to put this over. Like, I grew up watching this uncle, the Sheik, and Mongo cuts him off as Heenan's trying to put over the Sheik throwing fireballs and things like that. Mongo cuts him off because he has no idea what the hell he's talking about, but he thinks he does, and he wants to make himself look smart and makes himself look stupid instead. Because Mongo goes, oh, yeah, the Sheik, he had the curl-toed boots, and he'd kick people, man, and knock them out. And I'm like, that's the Iron Sheik, you asshole. Like, he had no <laughs> idea what the hell was going on here. And it was just, he made himself look like a fool. And, and Heenan and Bischoff do not respond. They don't even engage or or correct him or go along with it. They just move on with the match. But I, I noticed that, and I, I wanted to put that according
1: in there. To, according to Meltzer, Bischoff did the same thing to Sabu in the back. Uh, he told him a story like, I grew up with the Sheik, and I loved him. And then he remembers when Hogan pinned him at, at uh, an MSG. And again, it was the wrong Sheik. Right. Like, I don't know how true that is, but Meltzer did report that. in The Observer that Bischoff kind of made himself with like an ass in front of Sabu as well. But, yeah, uh, but that wouldn't
0: make any—I mean, I, I believe you, but that just doesn't really coincide with anything. If Bischoff really did ever see the Sheik, which I don't doubt that he did, Bischoff you know, grew up in, in that area-esque. So I'm sure he had to have known who the Sheik was. So for him to confuse it with Iron yeah. Sheik, that almost sounds like a Meltzer story to me or a Sabu telling Meltzer the story to me
1: because, so you know, these, like these guys just well. these
0: guys just made things up sometimes.
1: And it's funny, too, that Mongo had that story. I didn't pick up on that, but Mongo essentially did the same thing and then all of a sudden Meltzer's telling the story that uh, Fish off did the same thing. Like, really? So, yeah, it's probably fake.
0: Yeah, and for the four minutes, if Sabu wasn't hitting a big... Like wild move. He was taking, you know, big moves. He took that damn dropkick. He missed that spot on the guardrail. And then he even, uh, he had Alex Wright superplex him off the top rope, which, you know, you didn't see that all the time back then off the top like that. So Sabu was uh, out there. He was, he was ready to take it as much as he was to give it. I give him a credit there. I wonder if the finish was kind of screwed up because Sabu goes to the top rope and basically executes a victory roll off the top rope. and Doesn't even bother to hook Alex Wright's leg, which, so it made me assume Wright, Wright was supposed to kick out here. They even looked a little confused that that was the finish. And Bischoff even said that's his finisher. That's the Arabian press, which that's not the Arabian press. The Arabian press is like a basically a, a moonsault where you bounce your thighs off of the top rope and, and you fall back into a, a moonsault type position. And that was definitely not it. So uh, maybe that was supposed to be the finish. So that's what Bischoff had in his notes. That's what he called it. But he hits a really shitty looking Victory roll off the top rope, doesn't even bother to hook the legs, and they call for the three count. I'm wondering if that was supposed to be the finish, if there was supposed to be an Arabian press there, or if the actual what we end up seeing on the outside was supposed to be the finish. Because immediately after this, they go to the floor. <laughs> Sabu finds a table. It's it's underneath a sheet or a cloth or something. So Sabu knows where this table <laughs> is, though. And he just happens to uncover it and pull the table out and set it up. And he sits Alex Wright on the edge of the table sitting up. And Sabu, I thought Wright was going to move for sure because he he just was he was set up on the table awkward. But Sabu dives off the top rope and kind of clotheslines Alex Wright through the table. They will dive right through the table to put the uh, cherry on the top. I guess is what what I'm going for here is uh, Sabu making sure to get a table spot in. And then the referee reverses the decision. Even the announcers seem a little confused at first as to what was happening, but. Sabu putting Alex Wright through the table after the match basically resulted in a reverse decision. Alex Wright technically gets the one here on a disqualification.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty fun match. It was entertaining. It was fast-paced. And uh, like you said, man, he let, he let Alex Wright give it to him. Like, he did a nice backflip off the top rope into a German suplex uh, with a nice bridge. Alex yeah. Wright did. Could have been a squash, but he let Alex get some work in, and I was impressed by Alex Wright. I never really had an issue with him, but he looked pretty good here. You could tell he was a little timid having to work with Sabu because just I'm sure a lot of those ECW guys had reputations coming in that they're reckless or dangerous or whatever. So I'm, I'm assuming uh, Alex was a little put off by having to get in the ring with him. But at the same time, he he went in there and held his own and did pretty good. Uh, I was entertained by this match. But the finish, I'm with you, man. i wonder if that's what the finish was supposed to be all along. And Alex Wright just didn't kick out in time. But it didn't make much sense.
0: Yeah, and they did all this in a matter of four minutes is the funny part. There was not a lot That's of funny. selling in this match. It was just go, go, go. But if it was supposed to get Sabu over, it worked for me. I thought it was a great job. Um, we go I to want to see more. Mean Gene Okula in the ring with Ric Flair. Flair's out there in a the suit, so I'm assuming he's not wrestling this week. Uh, it's basically party time for Ric Flair, but when is it not? He offered Arn Anderson to party with him, but Arne turned it down in favor of his family. So I hope we don't, I'm hoping we don't go back to this Ricky Steamboat crap again. I mean, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, Flair holds up the four fingers. He said it doesn't necessarily represent the four horsemen. Then he starts counting the words on his fingers. It represents the symbol of excellence. Basically, Arn had left Flair's side at this point is the story that's supposedly going on. Lex- this is the weird part. It felt very, yeah. very forced. Lex Luger comes down. So it's like, oh man, what's going to happen here? Luger's come down. He's in his gear. He's getting ready to wrestle Hogan later for the World Heavyweight Championship. So Luger's in his gear and he comes down and he gets in the ring. And it's like, what's going to happen here? What's the story here? Flair puts over Luger's physique. Flair puts over partying. Lex gets in basically one line. He says, still the same old nature boy. Then Luger turns around and just walks off. I was like, what the hell was that? (laughs) I mean, it was just that fast. It took him longer to walk down to the ring than to say his line and leave.
1: Yeah, I had the exact same note that you have. What the hell is the point of this? I don't know if they used Luger to push the feud between Arn and Flair, where he's still not really taking anything serious talk about partying and things like that, and Luger's just kind of insinuating that. But other than that, I have no idea what the hell the point of this was. The only thing I can I guess Luger, was... They I were... saw Luger coming out, and I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. And then yeah. he did that, and I'm like, what the hell?
0: Yeah. It made no sense. The only thing I could, I could assume maybe was they wanted to test the waters for a Luger and Flair program, have them come out, and see how the fans react, just to them standing, you know, in the ring with each other. Other than that, I have no idea what the hell that. I'm telling you guys, go check it out. It's like it just makes no sense. That made no sense. We go to our second match. It's Sting taking on Mr. Wall Street, but Mr. Wall Street has a new name. He's no longer Michael Wall Street, like he said in the vignette last week. His name has been changed to. VK Wall Street, as in Vincent Kennedy Wall Street, if you follow where I'm going there.
1: I like the Michael Wall Street name. I thought it was pretty cool, but it kinda kinda plays off of kind of Michael Douglas and I can't even think of Wall Street. But now it's just clear night is day. VK, we all know what that stands for. It's well like we do now.
0: It was a it was a very subtle shot at Vince back then. I had no idea that Vince's initials were, you know, VKM. That wasn't like common knowledge in nineteen ninety five, Vince's middle name. You know, people nowadays, they're like, well, how the hell did you not know that? But nobody was going around talking about that back then. So it only took a week for for Eric Bischoff or WCW to figure out how they could use IRS to take more digs in it, Vince. So Rotunda comes down or Wall Street comes down in a a cheap suit with a cheap looking gold dollar sign on the pocket. (laughs) It just made me laugh. Um, It was a nothing match. Sting with a slingshot shoulder block at one point in the match. I thought that was pretty cool. Sting countered the stock market crash, hit a sunset flip for two count. It was uh, good to see Rotunda back in a singlet here as well. Uh, he looked like he put on a few pounds in recent months. Nice to see him back in wrestling gear instead of that awful IRS crap that he was forced to wear for all those years. They go to the finish. Stinger splash. I guess they didn't want to make Rotunda look like a complete job guy on the on the in his debut, even if he did lose in four minutes. Uh, so instead of putting him in the scorpion and having him submit like a, a nobody. Sting goes to the top rope, nails the top rope crossbody block, gets a three count, gets the win on Rotunda in about four minutes, 15 seconds. Throwaway match. It was they, they promised to debut Wall Street. They did. He's clearly, based on this match, fodder, but he's getting paid, and I'm sure that's all he cares about at this point. And it gets Sting over.
1: He's a name, and uh, it's not just a typical squash. You gotta have names, and uh, that's what he was. Uh, but during the match, Bischoff runs through the raw results, and then McMichael says they named the show after a bunch of uncooked eggs. One of those things that Bischoff did doesn't happen every week, but if you pay attention, you, you'll hear those shots all the time from Bischoff and company. Heenan yeah. kind of stays out of it, uh, but Mongo and Bischoff have a good time initially with taking those shots at Vince and, yeah. and company.
0: Yeah, Heenan usually stays on the sidelines. He might make a comment here or there that sounds like he's almost taking a dig at the WWF, but... Clearly he's not into it and he doesn't participate in any of this stuff. And yeah, this would be the very first time that Eric Bischoff would take liberties at it. At Raw being taped and he gave away the spoilers. He crapped all over Shawn Michaels and his ability to throw a super kick and pointed out that the big main event on Raw, Shawn versus Sid, that was supposed to originally be a SummerSlam match. So it was huge that he went on there. That had never been done in wrestling history. The ability wasn't there either. So for Bischoff to come up with that idea so quickly and then execute it, it was Pretty shady, but very smart for business, I, I suppose. It was it was definitely a no-no. I remember when he first did that, I was like, I think about 5% of me was, oh, wow, I know what's going to happen on, you know, what's happening on Raw, you know, before it happens. The other 95% of me was like, I can't believe he just did that. That is effed up.
1: Yeah, it's it's very cutthroat and ruthless. Everybody says Vince is, but I mean, and he is. But others are as well. And Bishop is really the first guy that had the platform to be just as ruthless as Vince McMahon as far as like territory, like how Vince treated the territories and stuff. So, yeah. Bishop well, was pulling out all the stops. And uh, when it's a war and it's put up or shut up and it's time to win, uh, you do whatever it takes. So,
0: well, there I'm you cool know, with all of it. And there's a reason why, and I wanted to explain at the beginning of the program, and I absolutely forgot the re- there's a reason why this is called Monday Warfare and then subtitled the battles within because it's the battles within this war that really are the story of the entire war. You know, everybody knows Ron Nitro competed and, and for ratings and things like that, but it's all these little things, the giving away spoilers, the having people jump without Vince's knowledge and things like that. Those are the pivotal points that got Nitro to where it eventually became before it got to where it ultimately became.
1: Yeah. And speaking of that during this show, at least the raw show, anyway, on the East Coast, WCW actually purchased a commercial on the USA Network. Uh, that says something to effect if you want to see real wrestling and not a kiddie show, then turn into TNT and see wrestling where the big boys play. So, again, that's one of those <laughs> that's one of those things. Unless you're in the market where that commercial aired, or if you was flipping channels between the two shows, you didn't see it. But yeah, according to Melcher, that happened in some uh, some areas. Again, just one of those little things that Bischoff did. Uh, That was so far ahead of its time and cutthroat and ruthless. Uh, I I love it. It's, It's cool to see the competition.
0: So here on Nitro, we get world champion Hogan defending against Lex Luger. We get the debut of Sabu. We get Sting in action. But on Saturday night, it's the debut of Disco Inferno. We also see Big Bubba Rogers taking on Dave Sullivan, who at this time had a rabbit, which I forgot about until I watched this. And that made me angry that I remembered it because I watched this. But then I became even angrier because they mentioned something that I would have never remembered in a million years had I not watched this. And that's it. Big Bubba was allergic to rabbits. And the minute they said that I had these awful syndicated flashbacks of Big Bubba Rogers sneezing at a freaking rabbit. And oh my God, man, I, I could have done without this damn Saturday night segment here. But <laughs> it's, you know, that's, WCW syndicated versus what we're getting on Nitro, two completely different worlds. But so Disco Inferno debuts, we get Big Bubba versus, you know, Dave Sullivan and, and a rabbit. We get Alex Wright against Brian Pillman because Pillman's starting to do a turn, I believe here. And the Renegade takes on Max Muscle. What a show.
1: <laughs> so, can't wait to tune in.
0: And back to Nitro, it's Randy Savage taking on Scott Norton, if you remember from last week. Uh, Norton wanted to prove himself, and Savage says, "I'll be the guy. You can you can get in the ring against me, and we'll we can go, brother." And uh, they set it up for this week, and so here we are. Norton jumps Macho at the bell. They have a quick match. It doesn't go too long. Savage with the double accent off the top rope to the floor. Savage winds up injuring his back when Norton catches him in kind of a bear hug throw or something. Norton with a decent looking power slam hits a an elevated DDT, kind of like the Randy Orton DDT on the roast, but. Norton does it from the top rope and Savage goes straight down on his dome. Pretty quick match out of nowhere. The dungeon of doom come running down like they did at the mall of America last week. Again, hokey, but not, not as bad because you got all these cartoon characters running down, but at least they're not in a damn mall. So they hit the ring and and the first guy up on the apron is shark earthquake, avalanche, whatever. Bischoff calls him avalanche here. He's actually shark. He gets up on the apron and he starts to climb in the ring, but Savage whips Norton into tenta shark, avalanche, earthquake you know, whatever the hell else you want to call it. And it causes Norton to take a bump in the ring. Shark falls into the ring and lays across Norton's legs. So that Norton can't move, even though Norton's like one of the strongest men in the fucking world. If you just look at him, he can't move here. He's wriggling. He's trying to get out. He can't get out. Meanwhile, Savage is off the top rope, big elbow, boom, one, two, three referee counts three, even with John Tinta laying across Norton's legs during the entire pinfall. I don't know how this was a disqualification, or at least at the very least, I don't know how the referee made the count watching Tenta laying across Norton's legs like that. But that was a way for Norton to save face, even though he had just debuted last week. His very first match, he's doing the job. They tried to save face by having Earthquake lay across him, but still did him no wonders. Match just went a little over five minutes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you would call it DQ. I mean, Savage knocked him into avalanche and he just kind of fell over. Nobody else did anything.
0: I could see how you would throw get, the match out because there's interference. Yeah. No matter how, way, it, how it went, you could throw the match out. out. Yeah. Even if you didn't want to call the DQ, even if you wanted to overlook that, hey, that was accidental. If you want to do all that, the guy's laying on top of him while he's getting pinned. Now, how is that fair? He's holding him down. He's pinning him down. So, and uh,
1: Avalanche or Shark just took like a glancing blow, so he shouldn't be knocked out. Yeah, he and he was knocked out
0: cold. Yeah, that was another note that I, I had. I, I don't think I wrote that down, but in my mind, I'm like, this guy's knocked out cold in you know from running into each other. Meanwhile, El- 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 Savage drops the elbow, gets the three, and immediately after the three, Norton's already getting back. He's shoving shark off. he couldn't do that a minute ago but he's shoving shark off his legs he's getting up he's protesting it's like wow he was knocked out a second ago he takes the elbow drop and now he's back up and then it's not very much longer after that that shark's back up Norton wants to go at it with shark they kind of sh- exchange some words with the dungeon of doom leave Norton's uh, in the ring in a huff he's lost his match savage goes over so you get Hogan versus Luger you got savage you got sting all in one show very babyface heavy show other than Sabu uh, getting all the big stars on there though, very smart. All against the very first episode, they're going against Raw, so very smart booking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Some of it's cluster, two shoddy finishes back to uh, you know, uh, not necessarily with BK and Sting, but Alex Wright and Sabu get the overturn, and now you got this going in. You probably think Hogan and Luger's is definitely not going to end in a definitive finish, so you can kind of see some kinks in the armor even in the second episode on what they're trying to do as far as getting everybody on the show that needs to be on the show uh good for them good job right
0: right and we'll go to our main event match which is world champ we've been waiting for this one this is the big main event up against uh sean and sid on the other channel it's hulk hogan and lex luger you tell me which one you're going to choose from i mean now in hindsight you're probably going to say based on name value most of you will probably say hogan and luger Back then, it was it was a hell of a dilemma for most of us because Shawn Michaels was the beginning and end of the WWF at this point, uh, other than maybe Bret in the WWF. So, Shawn and then Sid was huge, and we'd never seen that match before. So, it was there they they were big matches on both channels. Of course, Vince had taped his match prior to Nitro even debuting, though, so it really wasn't fair. Bischoff knew what, what to expect, obviously he announced the finishes, so he could have put anything he wanted to on against it, which is what he did here.
1: Yeah, Sid- I think at this point. I went with Hogan and Luger, if I remember correctly. I mean, I can't remember every episode, but I'm pretty sure I was like just so infatuated with Nitro because it was so new and fresh and different that I was definitely tuning into Hogan and Luger. Uh, I feel like.
0: Well, you know, early on in Nitro, there was a replay of Nitro. I don't remember what time it came on 11, midnight, something like that. Yeah, midnight. But they re aired it. What I did was I watched my WWF and I recorded my Nitro because I know I could. I didn't even do a whole lot of flipping in the early stages because I knew I could record it. I may have flipped for a couple weeks because it was still really, really new. But once I knew I could record it and just watch it straight through, I started recording Nitro, watching raw because they gave us that option, which probably wasn't. I think they did that because they wanted to make sure they covered their ass and got as many viewers as they could on their eyes on their TV show. But I think it, it hindered them to a little bit early on because people like well, me. they did it
1: too because uh, the West Coast. Initially yeah. uh, tnt didn't they're live on the West Coast. Right, right. They did the replay to challenge Vince. I think it was something like that. One of them did air on the West Coast live. So they had to, they did the replay to challenge uh, the West Coast feed.
0: Right. I remember something like that. One of those channels doing it. Or that. no,
1: Nitro aired live on the West Coast. Right. And, and then there Vince was Raw that was aired three hours
0: behind. Right.
1: And then gotcha. that's when they did the replay. They did the replay at midnight to cover Raw on the West Coast so they can yeah. kind of eat into that.
0: Yeah. And say what you will about Hogan matches in this era because I certainly wasn't a fan. But whether the matches are, are good or not, we've had two Nitros in, in a row, and both of them have a World Heavyweight Championship match on them. So, I mean, that, that's pretty huge. Hogan versus Luger, first time ever. That's pretty huge, too, from, you know, just from a name standpoint, whether the action's all uh, awesome or not. I mean, it's just Hogan versus Luger. Luger was, I, I keep saying this, but Luger was just in the WWF a week ago. This wasn't even a, a possibility. And now a week later, they're fighting for the world title on free TV.
1: Yeah, it's so- insane to think about. This is what this changed the game. I don't think people realize that this changed the game for wrestling, whether it's good or bad. Now nobody knows, but for 1995, this was next level. This changed everything, and you can debate till you're blue in the face if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Like I said, but this is this was awesome at the time.
0: And for as lame as this match was, and it wasn't a very good wrestling match, but for these two guys, they went all out to a degree. Hogan busting out the, uh, around the world where he switched from the, uh, standing headlock to the hammer lock into the drop toe hold. Whenever Hogan would bust that out, I'd, I'd pop because I mean, I always knew he knew how to do it. He never really did it in the WWF, but it was always fun when, whenever he pulled that out of there. I love the spot where Hogan suplexes Luger. First of all, I've never seen Hogan really do suplexes, but He suplexes Luger and Luger pops up. Meanwhile, Hogan's doing the heel gimmick. He's pointing to the crowd. Yeah, brother, I showed him and I got him. And Luger's behind him waiting. He's no selling the move. Hogan turns around and to his surprise, Luger's standing there flexing, you know? And I was like, you never saw that in the WWF. Hogan never got cocky like that in the WWF. So that was Hogan having a little more free reign to do whatever he wanted to do in the ring. And then, of course, they kind of repeated this this same type of uh, spot in reverse with Luger dropping Hogan and Luger getting up and Hogan flexing and no selling. It was fun. It was really the only fun thing in this match for me. Anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah. You just kind of waited for the, uh, the stupid finish.
0: Ludicrous line of this match, uh, came from Eric Bischoff. He's talking about Luger. He said, Lex had main evented elsewhere, but never made it past. And he used this term mid card status here in the WCW. First of all, what what are you smoking? What are you talking about? And it's not even excusable because you were here when he was world champion. Luger had never been anything less than semi main event since he debuted in the NWA. And Bischoff pushing the narrative here that, and I get what he was going for here. I mean, you know, Ray Charles could have seen that or Stevie Wonder. He's the one that's still alive. So I guess we'll go with Stevie Wonder. But the yeah, story he's I, wanting I get- to tell is Luger's a star somewhere else, but he's, you know, a smaller fish here in this, you know, bigger pond, so to speak. And, that, it's that just sense funny sense. how he changed the narrative. It's like, it hasn't been that long ago. I don't think that many fans have tuned out to where they don't know what Luger is. And if you're wanting to make Luger a big deal and a main eventer here, why are you crapping on him like this? But this might go back to Bischoff not really taking Luger seriously. I don't know. But okay. I just thought I just laughed at, laughed at the idea of him trying to push that narrative.
1: That's just stupid. This is his first match, and you're already saying he's a mid-card talent. Why should we care any more about this match after you just said that?
0: Well, what does it make Hogan if Luger beats him? You know, that's another thing the guys used to be told all the time exactly. in, the, in the old days. They, they learned that early on when they started running down, when the new guys were coming and they'd run down their opponents, they'd call them out of shape or they'd call them too old over the hill. The veterans would come at him and say, what the hell are you doing out there? You just buried your opponent. Now, if he beats you, you look like shit. And if you beat him, it means nothing because you already said he's worthless. So you've killed this match. And that's, you know, so that's kind of what Bischoff did there. He kind of crapped on Luger. So that wouldn't have done nobody any favors here. Anyways, Luger goes on. He goes on to put Hogan in the torture rack. Referee starts raising Hogan's arms once, twice, drops twice, raises a third time for absolutely no reason whatsoever, other than it's it's in the booking plans. Luger drops Hogan out of the torture rack. He thinks he's won. No idea why. Uh, Hogan <laughs> Hogan's arms up though. He 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 didn't he didn't submit or he didn't pass out, and so Luger has to cover him. And I said, why the hell would he drop him to cover him? And then it all made sense. Well, he needs to hulk up. So he covers them one, two. Here's the big Hulk up, and here we go. Hogan with the big boot. Hogan drops drops the big leg on Luger. Luger's been here for one week, and he's already taken Hogan's finisher. Uh, I didn't really care for that. I, I would have liked to have seen this finish happen a little faster, and the finish is the Dungeon of Doom run-in. And I would have liked to have seen them run in before Luger took the leg drop, at least, to save face a little bit here.
1: Yeah, you go with the Bischoff comments, and then he just drops him for no reason, just so Hogan can get the Hulk up and boot. Yeah, you just totally killed Luger uh, immediately one weekend. Really, no direction, so to speak. Like, yeah, you get a lot of angles for TV, but you're not getting a lot of direction. Um, eh.
0: And th- and this felt term, like but, this yeah. felt like a Hogan booking plan because I put my notes here: leg drop on Luger one week into WCW because, of course, he does. H- Hogan wants to make sure he wa- everybody knows who the big dog is, and uh, that's that's how I took it anyway. So he drops yeah. a leg, the Dungeon of Doom run in, we get a big schmaz no contest dq whatever you want to call this dungeon of doom attack hogan maybe hogan wins by dq i guess because they don't touch luger which comes into play in the next segment so the dungeon of doom they just attack hogan they beat down on hogan macho man and sting come running out to make the save so we see all the war games team partners in the ring here we go to commercial we come back we have mean gene in the ring again with the big four hogan luger sting savage everybody's in the ring everybody's pointing fingers savage is super paranoid it's only the macho man can be hogan is too they're both questioning why the dungeon of doom only attacked hogan why didn't they attack luger as well and i started thinking well they only have heat with hogan why should they attack luger just because he's a good guy but savage's logic is is that luger has ties to the dungeon of doom and then sting defends luger says no way he you know he's my friend there's no way he has ties to the dungeon of doom then Savage points fingers at Sting and even Jimmy Hart randomly says maybe they're all part of the Dungeon of Doom. This felt very Macho Man-esque as far as his paranoia with Elizabeth and things. Everybody's out to get her, yeah, you know? And uh, so, so he he turns his paranoia on like full blast here. Sting actually uh, winds up in asking Hogan uh, not to initiate Luger as the fourth member of their War Games team to replace Vader. Sting points out Vader's gone and they need a new partner for the Dungeon of Doom. They could probably beat him three on four anyway, but so Sting suggests his buddy Luger. Hogan isn't so sure. He's, I don't know, he's not really buying into Luger's complete as a babyface here, I guess. Uh, Savage is saying absolutely not, no way, but Hogan gives in. I guess he gives in to Sting. He trusts Sting, so he offers Luger the fourth spot in the War Games match. Luger accepts, but only on one condition. He still wants a return match for the championship. Uh, Hogan agrees, and that's basically how we set up Luger replacing Vader in the war games. And my only issue with that was shouldn't Luger have received a a rematch anyway, given the way the match finished.
1: Yeah, absolutely. He was in line for one. I mean, he should have been, I liked it. I mean, Luger got what he wanted. Hogan got what he wanted. And uh, now they got a team. They're ready to roll for fall brawl.
0: And that's the end of nitro. That concludes nitro. And we'll kick things off with Monday night raw. And this is taped all the way back on August 28th. That's a week before even nitro debuted last week. So, this is old and in the can, and that's why Bischoff knows what what the hell's going on here. Uh, they're in Canton, Ohio at the Civic Center here. And uh, my first notes here when I watched Raw, this episode of Raw come on was, I don't even remember the song from this opening. I don't remember it at all. Usually things uh, jog my memory. I was drawing blanks here. I know the video very well, the whole video, the whole rooftop film and filming and all that stuff. But I seem to remember remember the instrumental type background music to this, but I don't remember the song, the singing in the song at all, so I didn't like it. It was very lame, very timid. It didn't sound very raw, and it certainly wasn't competitive against like the big nitro in your face opening.
1: No, absolutely not. It was very bland and boring. I liked the video, but the, the singing, like you said, was trash. You could barely hear the guy.
0: Yeah, it might, and that might be why I don't remember it. Maybe it didn't last all that long. Uh, anyway, we kick off the show. They're taped, so we got Lawler and Vince standing in front of a green screen of fans. I always hate that. It was so obvious, and they did that for such a long time. We kick off the show with Razor Amon uh, taking on the British Bulldog, the newly turned heel British Bulldog. This is one of Bulldog's first big singles matches here, and he's going up against, well, as high up on the card as you can get without being Shawn Michaels or Diesel or or, or Brett. Uh, Bulldog's taking on Razor here, and he's fresh off the heel turn. I thought by this point Bulldog had gotten a little more jacked to the point where he wasn't working his uh style that he used to be able to work but i was uh, he still did some decent stuff here he did the uh, the that flip that that handspring flip counter out of the uh the arm bar and some other things he took some decent bumps early on the match saw davy boy work the back of razor He hits the delayed suplex he tries for the power slam razor grabs hold of the top rope causes davy boy to lose balance razor falls on top for a 2 count davy boy goes to the top rope never seen him do that before and the reason why is he gets slammed off here uh, Razor impressed me. He took somebody Davy Boy's size and gave him a followaway slam. It was very impressive, I thought. Ramon whips Bulldog into Tim White in the corner. Referee Tim White, for those who don't know. And he nails the Razor's edge. Uh, of course, the referee's out. So out comes Shane Douglas, known now as Dean Douglas. I'm sure you love that. Shane comes, he starts to climb up the wrong ropes. He realizes he can't reach Razor from where he's at, so he adjusts and goes to a different top rope. Jumps off, hits Razor with, I don't know, what the hell, an elbow, a forearm, a knee. I don't know what the hell it was, but hits Razor in the back off the top rope. So the 1-2-3 kid, who is Razor's best buddy, comes running down to try to make the save, and they make the kid look like such an ass here. So the kid hits the ring. Douglas suplexes the kid gut first across the top rope as well. And Davey Boy gets up, hits Razor with the power slam. But now Kid climbs back to the top rope again. He jumps off to try to stop the pin Bulldog on Razor. But Bulldog moves, and Kid winds up hitting a top rope splash on his own buddy Razor Ramon. The referee calls for the DQ. I think Razor gets the DQ in, even though he was the one that got hit with the splash from the kid. I don't really remember. I don't know who the hell won this. But um, the kid was not not done any favors here. He looked like an absolute buffoon with Dean Douglas. He looked like an absolute buffoon with Davy Boy Smith. And then by the next second, he looks like kind of a, a buffoon with Razor alone.
1: Yeah, I think Bulldog won by DQ since the kid hit Razor to help Bulldog win or, or something like that. I, I think that's what they were going with. But how how does um, yeah. Bulldog
0: win if the kid lands on Razor? That that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter what his, his intentions are. It's what he did. He hit Razor. That should be a DQ win for Razor. Yeah. That's that's in a world that makes sense. You know, we've seen like like we just pointed out some similar weird issues on, on on Nitro. So we got that going on on both shows right here. But after the match, Bulldog presses the kid across the top rope as well. And, oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, it looked great, but the kid was made to look like a absolute jobber here. Even Cornette stomped the kid down. So that's how bad this got for 123Kid for this for this segment. My note of this match is the style of the in stuff here just feels like a different sport completely from what we've been seeing on WCW or a completely different show altogether. Just the entire work here is different than the way the work is on WCW. and The WWF feels very choreographed and I'm not saying they went out there and planned their matches. I'm saying that These are my six moves. I'm going to hit my six moves, and that's all I'm allowed to hit, and then we have to go to a finish, whereas on Nitro, anything can happen in the ring.
1: Yeah, for sure. WWF had their style, and they they saved their big matches for the pay-per-views and uh, whatever was left of their house show business at this point. Yeah, it's two completely different worlds, um, two completely different wrestling companies, and uh, it's pretty cool to watch them, to be honest with you, just to see the difference night and day like this.
0: How did you feel about heel British Bulldog?
1: Oh man, I'm a huge British Bulldog fan. Uh, I liked him uh, ever since I was a kid, and it, it's never really gone away. I think I've I've grown to appreciate Hill Bulldog more than what I did when it first happened. To me, like when this first happened, I was like, "Man, come on, why'd you do this?" And it never really worked for me. I never really believed him as a main eventer. And when he cut his hair, I think that took a lot of his personality away from him. Now nothing's worse than like 1999 Bulldog with the pants and high socks looking ridiculous, but uh, I I really I'm starting to more and more enjoy this this run of the Bulldog, but initially I didn't really care for it.
0: Yeah, I was uh, when he turned heel. It was probably one of the least expected heel turn, and it was abrupt too. But uh, it was one of the least expected in the fact that he just didn't come off as a heel to me. He was perfectly fine as a heel, but he was never one of those heels that you hated. He never did anything dastardly or. He never cut a great heel promo to make you hate him or to make you like him as a heel. He was just kind of there, and he was on the bad guy's side is the way he looked. And so that's why he just kind of fit in with the with the unit, with Camp Cornette or whatever. It never did yeah. anything for me. I didn't like him as a heel. I didn't buy him as a heel. It was very bland. And the matches and that he had, really... they seemed to regress. Uh, it seemed like it was during this period where he started getting worse and worse in the ring, unless he was working Sean or Brett or somebody who could bring out the best in him. He wasn't going to go out there and have good matches anymore without working a with a great opponent because his matches yeah. became pretty pretty bad, pretty damn standard fast.
1: Deal matches. Yeah, <laughs> standard pretty. Deal pretty
0: the minute he l- realized he didn't have to do much in the ring, he didn't do much in the ring unless he was forced yeah, to. Because look at these upcoming matches on pay per view with Bigelow, and then the worst of all with Diesel—that atrocious, awful match. Yeah. Even Cornette says probably the worst, you know, match, you know, he ever like managed or whatever. It's just, it's pretty bad pretty fast.
1: None of that. He did. didn't really change up his style to either to match a heel. Like he, like right. you said, he that flip out of the arm bar and then the big gorilla press. Like seeing those feats of strength is something you want to see from a good guy to get the pop. And,
0: uh, yeah, and he never they seem-
1: changed from that. And yeah, that, they, And
0: they seem to eliminate even some of those spots as he developed as a heel. They seem to take away some of those baby face spots from him. Those that press slam and the flip spot. It was like, OK, you okay. can't do any of your face spots anymore, but you don't have any heel spots. So where are you? He didn't he didn't reinvent himself. So it was very bland. His entire heel run was very, very bland, save for a few matches with uh, Sean or Brett. I can't I tell you another. So, I can't tell you another person he had a good match with after that. I I can't think of one.
1: This makes you wonder if he didn't want to do it because a lot of times if you get switched up, you're gonna you know put in the time and effort. All right, I'm a bad guy now. I'm gonna change my move set. I'm gonna buy into this. So I'm gonna sell like a million bucks and I'm gonna get myself over. And it just seems like he, his interest completely went downhill at this point. So this makes me wonder if he didn't really want to make this switch.
0: So after the match. Uh Bulldog's gone. We go to commercial. We come back. It's uh promo time. Vince McMahon in the ring with Razor Ramon and the one two three kid. I guess they've been having their issues lately. Uh Vince uh says that the one, two, three kid cost Razor the match today, and the kid kind of gets upset with Vince's comments. He says Razor cost him a match last week, which I thought was funny because Raw didn't air last week. But he says yeah. Razor <laughs> cost him a match last week on Raw, which without going back, I'm assuming the way it sounded like maybe it was against Dean Douglas or I'm not really sure, but He's blaming Razor for costing him a match last week on Raw, and um, he's sick of being treated like a kid, and he says he wants Razor's respect, and therefore he challenges Razor Ramon to a match next week on Raw. He says he beat Razor once, he'll beat him again next week, and he'll get his respect from Razor after all. He's not a kid anymore. He doesn't need Razor's help, and the kid leaves the ring. And Razor basically says, if you want it, you got it, and the match is made for next week. So Pretty cool. I mean, they made that match before Nitro debuted, so they may not have known what was going to air on Nitro. But at least they're booking some decent matches at the start of this. I don't know if it's a coincidence or if Vince did this on purpose. But Razor and the Kid next week on
1: Raw. I thought the kid just sounded like a, a little bitch in this promo uh, yeah. or this interview. He didn't, right. he didn't sound any he didn't sound confident at all. It just carried over from what he went through during the match. Mistake after mistake, and then he stuttered on his words. and said, we're all last week when there was no raw. And another point that I hated about this was Lawler, every time there was a um, dead spot, a dead air, he would talk over the segment. Uh, yeah. I'm old school. I like I like when the segment is the segment, and I don't need any commentary on top of the segment. Well, you know, the segment do its job, and right. it, it annoyed the shit out of me. Cause well, it, you know, that was post-production.
0: You know, because it wasn't live, and so
1: I get that's that's fine, but I mean, it's the first couple times it's fine, but every time Razor stops talking, Lawler's talking, yeah, he's talking over while Vince is trying to talk, and I'm just like, shut the hell up! I know it's post production, but come on, It, it was annoying,
0: yeah, and he did it so much in this particular promo that I wouldn't have noticed it had he hadn't done it basically every single time there was a pause, and that's why we got about midway through this promo, and I'm thinking. This dude was told to speak every time there's dead air so that there's no dead air. And since it's, you know, been recorded, he knows how long he has to speak in between these, these sound bites or or whatever. And you create these sound bites, which is all he did created a bunch of sound bites. that got, you know, interspliced in between the razor and kid promo. And, I'm, and you're right. I don't mind somebody saying a couple of things like Vince would comment, like certain things people said, or what was happening on a brother love show or something. That's fine. But he was doing it so much, it was it was hindering the, the damn promo. It was taken away from the promo because he was like, yeah. it would be like if you're trying to hear a song and, and somebody's sawing something next to you. You know, it's like two things going on at once. You can't enjoy or completely appreciate or understand what the hell's going on because some other, somebody else is running interference. And yeah, it was just overkill.
1: I agree. And they kind of took away some of the heat because he was doing jokes and everything else. And it's just like, yeah, stupid.
0: So now we have our typical raw squashes. We have a couple of those. We get the Smoking Guns over the Brooklyn Brawler and Rad Radford, Louis Bicoli. Match goes about 2 minutes, 45 seconds. They hit the sidewinder on Brawler to take it home. Heels got a little bit of heat here. Wasn't much of anything. My only other note in this entire match was during the Smoking Guns entrance, Billy Gunn comes right up to the camera, and it, it brought back bad memories from my youth here. It gave me, Billy Gunn's uh, mustache used to give me nightmares. Like it just, it creeped me the hell out. It looked like it just didn't belong there. And uh, he just, it, it's like some people are afraid of clowns. And I think I was afraid of Billy Gunn's mustache. So I was so grateful when he got rid of that thing. It's just a note brought back memories, uh, bad memories of, you know, being a teenager.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I hate you, man.
0: So we get a vignette here of gold dust. And uh, here he's standing in Hollywood Hills. He has a sparkling golden top hat on. <laughs> Great look here. He's a long ways from being the natural and just a quick fun story about the gold dust character. It's how I found out about the observer. I used to go to an indie show. They ran here once a month and um, we would stand in line for like an hour before they let people in. Because if anybody's ever been to an indie show, they never open the doors on time. They never start on time. Let's say the show was supposed to start at six. It probably didn't start till six 30, sometimes seven, depending on what the hell was going on. So the doors open later too. So you're kind of stuck out there standing in line for an hour sometimes but young fan just love the business just to be there and used to be this the first 20 people in line were basically the same faces every week we had our own you know hat guy he we didn't wear a hat but we we had our own hat guy and our our own you know uh, ecw type crowd like we knew i never conversated with these people outside of a word here or there in line because they didn't look like the the, the greatest of characters if you know what i mean like they're not people i wanted to go hang out with but, but sure. you still knew them by face because you're in line every week with them and there was this one guy who was there all the time, religiously standing behind me in line. I'm standing there with my cousin. He starts talking about what's going going to happen on the WWF. And I start wondering, how the hell does this guy know this? Who does he know? Because I don't know the Observer exists. So who the hell does he know in the company that he knows these, you know, these things are happening? So I turn around and I say, excuse me, sir. Like, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm just curious how you, how you know these things. And he whips out an Observer and, I don't I don't really get to read it he never passes it off to me to look at but he explains that oh I get this thing in the mail and it expl- it tells me you know all the behind the scenes shit and whatever and stuff and the very first thing I ever learned from an observer was this was during the time where Gold Dust Vignettes just started airing but he hadn't appeared yet so we just got the Howard Finkel announcing Gold Dust with the gold glitter getting blown off the screen so he hadn't appeared yet he hadn't cut a promo yet so at that point I had no clue who Gold Dust was and he goes yeah, Gold Dust is uh Dustin Rhodes. Blue my I'm like, oh my gold dust is done. Like I, I'm curious how that's gonna play together, but that was my introduction to the observer, though. Learning that Dustin Rhodes was going to be Gold Dust. Sure enough, the next week or two weeks later, there's Dustin Rhodes cutting a gold dust promo on TV. So I was a believer after that. That's awesome. Back to the ring, and it's Isaac Yankum fresh off his SummerSlam match with Bret Hart. Here he's taking on the future Scotty 2 hotie, Scott Taylor. Man, they kept Scott Taylor around doing jobs on Raw for quite a long time. They must have really loved him. And finally, it paid off, and he got to do that whole too cool gimmick and stuff. So I'm happy for him. He was a good bumper. A little small, you know, for Vince's liking. So obviously, didn't get to go too far. Tag team was probably the best he was ever going to do. But uh, it was nice seeing Scott Taylor here. Uh, Does the job. I hated that they gave Isaac Yankum the DDT, or as they called it, the DDS, to play off his dentistry. He's just too damn tall to be executing a DDT on people, especially someone who's not exactly average wrestling height and Scott Taylor. It just looked very awkward, him trying to drive Taylor down in a DDT here for the finish, but Yankum gets the win in 2 minutes, 15 seconds.
1: Just a typical WWF squash, really nothing. I think they, the only reason they probably gave him the move was so they can name it the DDS. Uh, that's probably the only reason he has that move.
0: My only, my only note here has nothing to do with the match. It's just Isaac Yankum, the character. Yeah, he's the dentist character, so it's already shit. I'm not arguing that but I did recognize him from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I did know him as Unibom with the blonde hair from the vignettes, the dentist vignettes. When he let the blonde go and he went all natural or whatever this is here with the brown, I know it sounds silly, but with the blonde hair, he looked like a star. Even though he was a dentist, he still looked physically like a star to me. When he went brown hair here, he just looked like some generic jabroni off the street that just happened to be tall. Obviously the dentist gimmick didn't do him any favors. The Stupid pants he wore didn't do him any favors. Just the hair color to me just turned me off. I totally lost interest overnight when one, you know, he's cutting doing these vignettes as a blonde. He comes out and wrestles Where I remember my first sentence was, where did the blonde hair go? That was the first thing I thought of. So, yeah, I just, I never thought I'd lose interest in somebody based on their hair color.
1: Yeah, you, I never really paid that much attention.
0: <laughs> yeah, but he went from the bleached blonde to this just, you know, brown curly hair. I don't know, probably just me. We get an in-your-house report. Nothing really big deal here. Todd Pettengill's host in the report. I thought Todd did a great job hyping things, so he did a really good job here. It's the triple header in your house, the one where Diesel and Sean are defending their singles titles against Yoko and Owens' tag team titles. The winner wins whatever titles they beat the other guy for. The only thing to add here is Gorilla Monsoon, who's the interim president at this time, has basically added a stipulation that if anyone intentionally gets counted out or disqualified in this match they automatically lose their title as well. So that's to keep Owen and Yoko from doing a cheap DQ or count-out finish here. Of course, they find another way out of the match, but that's that's another story. We go backstage, it's Shawn Michaels coming out of his dressing room, headed to to the ring for the main event. He cuts a quick promo, leaving the dressing room. He walks past a ladder in in comical fashion. He kind of shies away from it like he doesn't want to see it. I thought that was a nice touch to Shawn coming off the ladder match with Razor at SummerSlam.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty entertaining spot there. He <laughs> he wanted no part of that ladder. He was good with ladder matches. Funny stuff.
0: So we go to the ring for the big main event. It's Intercontinental Champion Shawn Michaels defending against Sid. This match had actually been planned planned for SummerSlam, but uh, it was changed to the ladder match between Shawn and Razor. They had Gorilla change it when Gorilla took over from Jack Tunney. But the real reason is they changed it because they realized they needed something that night that could actually deliver. And that's not a knock on on Sid. It's just that we already had Diesel versus Mabel, two big guys, plotting big guys. We had Taker versus Kama, two plotting big guys. Uh, they needed something that was guaranteed to deliver wrestling wise. And that's basically why the match was changed from Sid and Sean to Sean and Razor in the ladder match. This is a Sean match, so he's not going to let it suck. I was kind of worried because Sid's out there and, you know, Sid's hit or miss. And uh, he was okay here. This was a TV match, though. So it wasn't. Didn't really come off as a main event or a pay-per-view type match for me. Um, But it was okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Sid bumped really good. Bumped good for Sean. And Sean bumped good for Sid. Sean likes Sid. You got to remember he's also the one a year later that he replaces Sid in the feud with Vader. He didn't like Vader. He took Vader out of the feud for the belt and put Sid in place of it. Gave Sid the belt. Sean has fun here. Decent bumping from Sid. Sid gets a little heat. Sean backdrops Sid out of a powerbomb attempt. Makes his comeback. And hits three super kick. Well, if you want to call them super kicks, some it's a super kick to the gut, and a, a one that glazes over the side of Sid, and then finally hits a third one that was pretty decent. Pins Sid after what was I guess supposed to be three super kicks. Takes it home in seven minutes twenty one seconds. This felt like extended. I don't want to say extended squash. This just felt like a Hogan versus Bubba. You know, Sid got his spots in, and then the the real main eventer won easily. There was no trickery or no DiBiase getting involved in the uh, finish there was just no nothing that led you to believe that sid had the match one sean made the full comeback and then got the win there was no there's nothing in between
1: yeah you got pushed really hard here i'm assuming was just getting ready for that in your house match there's some good matches good action in here like sid did a kip up out of a head scissors right into a choke slam i thought that was pretty cool yeah. um it was like right before the finish yeah, I was pretty surprised that Sid just pinned clean when like it was clean as clean can get.
0: Yeah, and I don't and even the, remember I don't remember Sid ever even ever being pinned that clean in Sid's entire career up to this point. Maybe he was just appreciative of Sean and wasn't in a position to refuse to do a job like that, or or like I said, maybe he just appreciated Sean getting him a job and getting him back in the company at times and so it was it was just a TV match. Nothing really fancy about it. Like I said, Sean made his comeback and there was no teases. There was no Sid trying to regain control. It was just Sean hitting all of his spots. Boom, 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 boom. Three super kicks, pinfall in and out of the ring. And I remember being shocked when Sid did the job, just a clean job like that in the middle of the ring.
1: Yeah, same here.
0: And uh, post-match, oh, I didn't need to remind of this. This is that period where Sean would strip after the match in the ring during Celebration. Obviously, he's catering to the chicks here, uh, but he had plenty of guy fans too. And I don't know why exactly or what he thought this was going to accomplish with guy fans or kids or parents that have kids. It was kind of uncomfortable for me when he used to do it, and especially if like one of my grandparents walked in the room or something, it was extremely uncomfortable. Like they're like, "What are you?" You know, they didn't say this, but I felt like they're they're like, "What are you watching?" And you know, but even watching this yesterday, this is very uncomfortable, and I, I really hated when he would pull it down past his pubic region (laughs) i could i could have done without this period
1: yeah me too it's pretty disgusting and a waste of time and and what's even more disturbing is the way vince mcmahon sold it like he was getting into it and that's vince always has this weird like i don't know of a word to describe it but i don't think there's any wrestler during vince's commentary days that he hyped up more than he did Shawn michael's
0: yeah, he had a I I he don't. had a man crush on Michaels the size of Mount Everest, man. It didn't matter what Sean did in that ring. Uh, Vince was uh, salivating over it.
1: Every entrance, he's like, just listen to a pay per view, and like Vince doesn't get popped for anybody, and then all of a sudden Shawn Michaels hits, and it's like night and day how he treats Shawn compared to others, and it's yeah, and it's pretty it's, disgusting, and it's it, uh, weird, it's so, especially when he's yeah. promoting this striptease shit. Yeah, and, uh,
0: it's so funny you always hear that um, nobody ever talked to Vince the way Shawn Michaels did, of course, later on after this, but uh, nobody spoke to Vince the way Shawn would tell him to F off and kiss his and ass and F you and all these things. And I'm sure Hogan might've said a few things here and there, but it was probably more of business heat than, you know, Shawn's rage, rage issues he had later on, uh, which I'm sure were, you know, really hard to deal with. But it's, it's funny that Vince did deal with it like that, I guess, because he needed Shawn at that point, uh, especially, but, It couldn't be because he was his biggest draw ever, because that's just not a fact, even though he's probably his best worker wrestling-wise ever. He definitely wasn't drawing whatever Hogan drew or probably even what Savage drew. So I I never understood how he he got away with as much as he got away with Uh, other than, you know, just he needed to keep him uh, to keep him away from the competition. So post-match, we get a promo with Doc Hendricks. Well, and he talks to Diesel and Shawn Michaels about the triple header match at In Your House. Uh, Shawn says he's righting all his wrongs. He made friends with Diesel again. He's got the Intercontinental title belt back. He avenged his WrestleMania 10 loss to Razor Ramon. Diesel says they're not just two dudes with attitudes. Uh, now they're two chaps with all the straps. Lame. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: He had that little smirk on his face like, oh, I just coined this phrase.
0: So we learn next week on Raw, it's Men on a mission taking on Yokozuna and Owen Hart for the tag team titles. Both teams are, are heels, which we just went from seeing Hogan and Luger here baby face versus baby face on nitro now next week we're getting heels in the wwf so very different times this did not happen in either promotion very often at all and now we're getting really the two top heel teams in the wwf at the time uh, going against each other there was really no reason for it other than i guess they were going for the tag belts but it was huge and then razor versus kid on the same show which is baby face versus baby face so heel versus heel face versus face next week what the hell's going on here? Is this because of Nitro or because remember this was taped before Nitro ever aired. So was this tape because of Nitro or was this just them trying to go in a different direction?
1: I'm sure Vince knew that Nitro was coming up and this was these were the tapings that were gonna go head to head with Nitro, Cause they gotta be living under a rock if uh or W C W would do one hell of a terrible job if they weren't promoting their new show then when it's gonna start, so I'm assuming they went into those tapings on what was it, August twenty eighth, knowing that Nitro is gonna be going and we gotta step our game up. So I,
0: Yeah, but the question no is how that. seriously did Vince really take Nitro before he saw it? I think not too seriously. I don't think he ever took WCW that seriously. And I and I know we got Sean and Sid here, but I feel with the filler in the middle, the Isaac Yankum, the smoking guns, Vince hadn't taken WCW as seriously, maybe as maybe as he should have out of the gate. Uh, We'll see if that changes. Uh, The booking logic uh, for Raw changes here in the next few weeks once they have time to tape some more shows now that they realize what they're up against. That's going to be interesting as we continue on down this.
1: I think he's maybe not as concerned. He's still going to do what Vince does, but at the end of the day, he's going to have to have some names on there because he knows what he's going against and the uncertainty of it. So if they come out and bomb and you have good shows, then it's just going to put the nail in the coffin quicker too if you look at it that way. If he assumed they were going to suck and then they had really good shows that's not going to make people turn the channel, then right. um, it's a double whammy for WCW. So, either way, he, he made some adjustments and put on some big matches that you never seen at that point in time.
0: And that concludes the September 11th week, uh, the very first co- competition between Raw versus Nitro. That also concludes this episode of Monday Warfare. But before we go, I need to point out a few things. First of all, the ratings. And before we get to these new ratings, Steve, for this week, the first head-to-head competition, Dave Meltzer wrote that the debut of Nitro with no competition from Raw, but competition from the opening Monday Night Football game, which is also huge, the opening Nitro drew a 2.9 rating in its first airing and a 1.2 for the Midnight Replay. The number was actually stronger than the debut of Raw and actually better than the traditional Raw averages when going up against football. So while WCW was apparently thrilled with the number they got, the 2.9 rating, Everyone knows the first set of numbers that count are really this week's here when they go head-to-head. And the ratings here with the head-to-head, the very first head-to-head meeting between Raw and Nitro, WCW Nitro, in the first head-to-head meeting, draws a 2.5 rating, while Monday Night Raw does a 2.2, so Nitro beats Raw in their first Monday Night battle. The number of people watching wrestling during the one-hour time slot was the largest for any one-hour segment since the Hogan and Flair match at The Clash last year in 94. And uh, the largest for any Monday Night show in years. So the Nitro replay also did almost a 1.0. point. I think it did a 0.9. Nitro beats Raw in their first head-to-head. Of course, Raw was taped as well. I don't know if airing uh, clips of the upcoming next show is going to help any with withdrawing more uh, rating. But yeah, Nitro gets a win. And you look at the the total here, 2.5 rating to 2.2 rating. It looks like both companies have a fan base of their own. And you're, you're looking at nearly uh, 5 million between the two and uh, certainly probably something like a seven share overall. So it's a pretty big deal for wrestling as a whole, but a a bigger deal here for WCW Nitro, who smoked raw in the ratings for the very first time. Vince couldn't have been happy.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely not, man. Uh, His baby was raw, and for Nitro to take over and knock him out, you know, that first couple weeks is, uh, you can tell, you know Vince is pissed, but, yeah, it's pretty cool that there's actually 5 million viewers watching two separate wrestling programs on a monday night and this is beginning of football season as well so to still have five million it's pretty crazy to even think about in today's world
0: and so that's how the ratings went down for the first week of raw versus nitro now let's talk about the segment of each show the segment of the week for each show um steve what are your segment of the week for each show
1: uh for nitro I think I'm gonna have to go with. I want to go with Hogan and Luger, but I might have to go with Sabu, even though the DQ switch kind of pissed me off. Sabu was just different than everything on any show, so right. um, I had to give him props. So I'll, I'll go with Sabu for the sake right. of the show. And for Raw, man, Raw was boring compared to the Nitros. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm gonna go with Razor and Bulldog. Uh, I, I like I like the whole Razor and British Bulldog uh, match, and then the aftermath with Kid and. Uh, Douglas and all those guys. I thought it was a good way to advance the the feud and set up a match for the following week. So uh, I'll go Razor and Bulldog and the kid.
0: I think for me, uh, Nitro wise, I know for me back then, the Sabu segment was absolutely by far the best segment of the night for me. It was just huge. Sabu debuted WCW and he did everything he's supposed to do. So major, major deal to me. I think looking back, I I should, I feel obligated to say Hogan and Luger. It's foolish not to say that. I mean, Luger just come in. Everything tells you that that should be the match, but I'm only going to pick Sabu. I, I was lean. I, I have them both on my list here, and I wasn't sure which way I was going to lean, and I think I'm only leaning towards Sabu because it it was a bigger impact for me at that time, and even looking back, did more for the show, for me, my type of fandom, than the Hogan and Luger match, only because the Hogan and Luger match was there was no finish and they did very little to get to where they were going it was all for a run in all to set up an angle for war games so it it hadn't been a real match i i don't think i could argue even if sabu's match was 20 times better i couldn't argue how more impactful hogan and luger would be but since the match was just a backdrop to set up crap for a pay-per-view i'm going to i am going to move back towards sabu and say that yes I'm sticking by that. 25 years later, still my favorite thing on the show was Sabu's debut. As for Raw,
1: what's that? I was just gonna say you take that Sabu match off the card, man. This is a terrible show.
0: (laughs) That is true. Yeah, it's a. It doesn't. It just feels like the typical WCW. Gone.
1: Yeah. The excitement would be gone from this show.
0: Yeah, it's all it's all one thing. It's the Sting, Hogan, Savage, Luger show again. So yeah, those Liger versus Pillman, Sabu those cruiserweights and those those T V title uh technical wrestler type guys and and the later the luchadors, those things are what set Nitro really apart from Raw. And I enjoyed those segments usually the most. But um as for Raw, my two here I was debating between were Shawn and Sid, now because again, it was not a good match. It was okay for T V, but it was by no means a good match, even by Shawn Michaels' standards. And then um, the Razor and Kid promo. Didn't really care for the Razor-Bulldog match. Really cool to see them go at it. Uh, I felt like those were two different segments completely, so I didn't want to lump them in together anyway. I like the Razor and Kid promo, but I think I still have to lean towards Sean and Sid. They put on a match. We got a finish. Uh, The title was on the line. It told the story. There was a backdrop or a reason for the match. Um, So Sid had put Sean out. I have to go go with that, even though it wasn't even good, which is, it sucks. Ross sucked. I mean, in a nutshell, overall, it sucked. And so, But you have to pick something. So I have to go with the least crappiest piece of crap on the show, and that was the Sean versus Sid match, you know. Only because the Razor and Kid promo, it was short, and I liked the idea of it, but there wasn't a whole lot to it. So, yeah, definitely Sean and Sid. So I'm going to go Sabu for Nitro, Sean and Sid for Raw. And then overall, uh, I don't think I really have to ask you, but which, who won this week for you? I'll be damned the ratings. Who did you pick to win, Nitro or Raw?
1: Nitro was a, a more entertaining show. Live is always going to be better than taped, so they had the upper hand as, as far as that goes. Even if it was taped, I, I'd prefer the Nitro show.
0: Yeah, Sabu made the show kick off exciting. You closed with Hogan and Luger. It doesn't get much bigger than that in any company. Not that Sean and Sid was, you know, name-wise, was, was much lower on the totem pole. but And Nitro's overall production just looked brighter and livelier and just better. I think that was like the first time that WCW had a better production than, than Vince McMahon.
1: But yeah, yeah. I think one thing that was cool too, like on the, the apron, the the banner, they put like Nitro on like a clear see-through thing, and they had lights going under the ring to make the ring kind of look pop. I don't think they did that very long, but I thought that looked really cool where you can kind of see under the ring and they had lights going. This made it feel like a Miami nightclub type deal. Uh, I know Bischoff was really into that sort of stuff. It just looked different, and like you said, man, the production was – off the charts compared to WWF. WWF looked like it was stuck in the eighties, which I never thought I'd say about them compared to WCW.
0: So your winner here, at least according to us is Monday Nitro for the week of September 11th. And I want to thank everybody for joining us for our inaugural Monday warfare podcast. And uh, we'll be back very soon with another episode where we'll tackle two more weeks of raw, two more weeks of Nitro. And that seems to be for the most part, what we're going to stick with at least for now. So um, yeah, I just want to, Thank you, Steve. Once again, I know we got a lot of things going on here with the grenade and, and other plans going on inside the Russell Copia brand. But, yeah, just thanks again for joining me, man, and being a part of this Nitro, Nitro and Raw podcast as well.
1: Yeah, man, you like to keep me up late, but I, I enjoy it. I love doing this. I love watching rewatching these things, just telling stories and getting them out there. It's a blast. So I thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. And guys, go on and check out our Patreon too, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia, because we got a lot of great power hours. Power hours is another podcast that we do where it's unfiltered. We speak our minds. We say what we want. There's no editing. A lot of different topics. We talk about everything from recent pay-per-view reviews to things Dave Meltzer said that we don't necessarily agree with, and we kind of pick apart and analyze and share our opinions and thoughts. Um, But yeah, it's just fun stuff. So go become a Patreon member. Go subscribe to our Patreon account. And you'll get cool things like our Patreon-only exclusive podcast, The Power Hour. But yeah, Steve, like I said, thank you for being here. I want to thank everybody, all our listeners that have already been following us over from The Grenade and and our new listeners who love the 90s and love the Robbers Nitro Monday Night War era. Uh, we'll We'll continue to do this, hopefully on the weekly. So stay tuned for more of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within.